Welcome to the Out of the Basement Podcast, a show where a group of friends get together and talk about a variety of geeky topics. Find out what shows we've been watching, find out what movies we've seen, find out what games we're playing. Come along and join us. We hope you enjoy the show. Hi, this is Devin Turak. Before we begin the episode, I just want to send a quick shout out to this month's Patreon backer. The backer this month is Jennifer McDonald, a new backer for the month of April. So Jennifer McDonald, this is your shout out. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Basement Podcast. My name, as always, is Devon Turak. Oh yeah. And today I'm joined by Paul Sanders. Hello, I didn't have a bottle with me. <laughs> Patrick Gleason. Hello, I have coffee because it's Sunday morning. <laughs> mm, <laughs> Patrick Ramsahoy. Good morning, everyone. Dwayne McKinnon. Hello. And today we're joined by esteemed comic writer Von Allen. Hello. All right, so let's start first by uh, introducing our guest, and can, maybe he can tell us a bit about himself and the comics that he writes. And then we'll get into our regular segments one, two, and three. Uh, three is going to be very good, I think, today. But anyway, mm-hmm. so let, let's start with introducing Von. Von, can you tell us a bit about yourself and the work that you do? Um, I'm an Ottawa-based, which is no surprise given the podcast, <laughs> an Ottawa-based <laughs> comics creator, writer, artist, guy. I've been doing it um, sort of all press stuff for about 10 years now, maybe just a little bit over. And I've done uh, like a variety of different work. I like to write and draw my own stuff. So I've done everything from sort of slice of life graphic novels to sort of kid-oriented stuff to more... Um, Action adventure, which is what I'm doing now, and also sort of a D&D inspired humor thing as well. So kind of all over the place, but it's a, it's a great deal of fun, very, very rewarding. You know, it, it's small press comics. It's hard to make a living doing it, but it's uh, it, I, I think, you know, with the right attitude, you can get a lot of both enjoyment out of it and a lot of sort of satisfaction from a career point of view. And I like it a bunch. So, yeah. Good. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the titles that you've uh, put out so far? For sure. So, I mean, um, <laughs> let's, let's say I've grown a lot as a writer-artist guy, and uh, my original work was rough. But my first graphic novel was called The Road to God Knows, and it was dealing with a lot of my own experiences uh, growing up with a mom who uh, was dealing with mental illness, schizophrenia in particular. So that one came out in 2009, and it was followed up by uh, a two graphic novel series called Stargazer, uh, dealing with uh, three kids who go through sort of magical adventures. And then um, like a number of different little one-shots and short stories kind of mixed in, uh, in and around that. And the series I'm working on right now is called Wolf's Head, and that's uh, sort of my first ongoing sort of long form comic book series and it's full color and it's uh it's really really fun that's where i am right now that's what i've been working on for the last few cool. hmm. that sounds awesome very cool and of course we'll have links to all that uh in the show notes all right hmm. let's move on to our segment one our weeks in the in the hobby um pat why don't we start with gleason uh, since we try to kind of bulldoze over you sometimes uh, we'll start with you. Why don't you tell us uh, what you've been up to? <laughs> well, in the in the lockdown, you mean of weeks of hobbies? Uh, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, computer gaming has become big again because it's like, oh, what let, what can we do? Let's go hang out with people. No, let's watch a lot of movies. Um, so for games, it's been Division Two mostly uh, that Paul and I and um, have been doing a lot of. 
that's the big one for games. Movies, actually, I've watched a fair amount, but I, like you know, guys, I like the dusters and also the gangster movies. Mm-hmm. So I watched, um, well, a new one with uh, Thor uh, Extraction. Okay, yeah, Chris Hemsworth called Thor. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's oh one. My God, I watched that last night. It is fantastic. It's pretty good. It's the the ending was not what I was expecting. Um, I mean, you could see it coming, but it was still pretty good. The way they followed. I don't want to give spoilers away. Yeah, nothing. It, it it is a good uh, action flick and it's not it's no one's really a heroes in some cases and you know it was, mm. it was nice to see uh, but then i was watched once upon a time in london uh which is set in the starting starts in the 30s and goes upwards uh for two crime families in london mm. obviously and then there was uh we we still kill the old way <laughs> Which is showing old gangsters, you know, old style gangsters with the new up and comer, you know, hoodlum boys. So that that was another funny one where it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. You guys, you think you're tough, you know? Okay, this is my torturer. He knows how to cut people up in 15 minutes, completely. <laughs> and and this is an old fashioned drill. We had to hand crank it to get through people's kneecaps. But now, I, <laughs> but now I've moved up to this. Power <laughs> one. Oh gosh. And the kids are like, ah, oh, you better let us go. I don't think you really understand what's happening here. <laughs> you're, you're not going away, you know. So it's funny. There's one line where the one kid's like, oh, "I'll I'll do whatever you want to," and the guy's like, "Sure, sure, let him go." And everyone's like, "You can't let him go." He's like, "Yeah, let him go." So of course, when they let him go, the kid tries to go for a gun, and that's when the guy shoots him. He's like, "You know me? I don't shoot people who are tied up." <laughs> I was like, "That's why I had to let him go. You can't shoot him when he's tied up." Like, yeah, so I don't mind torturing people. You give him a chance to hang himself. And he yeah, but it's like he'll yeah. torture them, he'll cut their toes off, all this sort of stuff. But, you know, I draw the line at shooting them when they're tied up. <laughs> and then I watched an older one um, called Hoodlum uh, with Lawrence Fishburne and set in the Harlem in the 1930s. You and your old gangster movies. Yeah, well, like I said, and then after that I went, hey, you know, I haven't seen New Jack City for quite a, quite a long time. Oh, good God. Yeah. And I, and I forgot. At its best. It, it was. But I forgot. It was like, okay, it wasn't as good as I thought because I hadn't watched it since it first came out. I forgot Ice T, you know, Mr. Cop Killer soundtrack, again, playing a cop in a movie. Yep. And then there's ones that Dev and I talked about uh, Split Second with Rutger Hauer. So set good. I need big guns. <laughs> really big guns. Uh, it's cheesy 80s action, sci fi action. Just like insane, they never explain. There's a alien, and the alien's there just to kill. There you go. That's it. And then a renamed one, Dark Angel, but it was actually originally called I Come in Peace, which we all remember as well, with mm-hmm. Dolph Lundgren, another alien who's here to harvest drugs from humans. And that's another cheesy, cheesy one. But Dolph yeah, Lundgren again. For some reason, I get those two movies confused in my head, and I had swapped out the the psychic character yes. from Split Second and put it into the 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 movie I Come in Peace. Yeah, I, for whatever reason. <laughs> well, it's like you said because it's been so long since you probably watched them as well, mm. and they are very, very similar movies. Yeah, you know the the grizzled, not caring cop who you know was on the edge, and no one really wants to work with him, and the new, you know, follow the book. Side or something not sidekick, but you know, new partner. Mm-hmm. 
definitely buddy cop action at it at formulaic stuff. But it was it was good. And then for that's pretty much it for movies really, just uh, stuff like that. Um for gaming uh actually been doing distance gaming, uh Discord with the Friday night group with Chris and his the uh, dungeons and dragons and stuff like that. Uh we actually did a Pathfinder or sorry, Starfinder, which is a science fiction one based on Pathfinder rules. I'll let Patrick talk about that because he's the one running it. And then yesterday we did a full session of Pendragon via Discord, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, um, it worked out really well, actually. You know, learning did you some find stuff. You needed the roll twenty, or because I, I would think 20, Discord roll... would probably be enough for you to. <laughs> no, roll twenty game. worked well. Tony has the character sheets for Pendragon, right? And it's really handy because you just click on the stat or the skill you want to roll, and it automatically yeah. rolls for you. Right. So, so roll twenty is really good for that sort of thing because I've never really used maps for tactical stuff. Yeah. Um, well, Pendragon doesn't really need it. Yeah, except when you're doing big battles and that. But other than that, it's not important. Um, but roll twenty is nice because the character sheets, like, okay, it doesn't have everything we need, but it has uh, quite a lot of the stuff, and it automatically it? does the calculation. Because in Pendragon, um, I don't. Know, for those who aren't familiar, even though we've talked about it a lot, when you over twenty, it's a it's based on the D twenty system. But when you have over twenty skill, you get an automatic plus for that. So if you're twenty three, you have plus three on your roll. Roll twenty takes that automatically into effect. So anyone okay. whose skills high, it automatically puts it there. You don't have to think about it. Right. So, it makes it really easy to add bonuses too. So like, oh, if yeah. you if you used a passion, now you have a plus five to a specific skill. Let you put any bonuses you have, negatives or yeah. positive uh, modifiers, yeah. and that also takes it into camp as well. Yeah, okay, it's very handy. It's very. Is handy it a like. fifth ed character sheet or a fourth ed? Fifth ed. Okay, but it's still close enough, right? Yeah, for, yeah, there, for most of the things. There's just a couple things that are. As long as you're avoiding or... magic, you should be okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and... it gives you options to add add things that you might have had from mm -hmm. previous character yeah. sheets. Exactly. So there's at, like, at least it it has that for it. You can add a whole bunch of. Uh, uh, passions and stuff like that and skills and right. considering these, these guys have been i've been bringing them for almost 20 years that yeah they have they have a lot of passions that i'm like add this one add this one add this one and what's interesting is pretty much all of them have a hatred or suspicious of loki because he's the big he's the big bad of, right. of the <laughs> other thing because <laughs> we moved into greek gods from roman right well, Greek? Roman and Greek gods are just the same gods by different oh, names. Sorry, not Greek. Um, that's Guardian? Norse. 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 That's yeah, your that's... family, Paul. That's your character. Yeah, family. yeah. I guess <laughs> uh, my Greek my Greek. I'm, I'm only I'm only <laughs> suspicious of Loki. You think being related to him might actually like, yeah, have a hatred like... or something? <laughs> he keeps screwing or possibly up. even no, a love. No, no. I just... No, no. Yeah. There's no love. No, no, no. No, love. But not too much hatred, though, either. Um, and that's it. I'm still reading the uh, Believe It or Not, Horus Heresy is now finally onto the Assault on Earth. Uh, and they've already had three books in this series. I've obviously read them all, but it's not done. And they're getting to be pretty massive-sized books now. Um, but yeah, Dan Abnett and all those guys are writing for it, which is really great. And I'm, I'm thinking they could probably just drag this out for another, you know... <laughs> Four books still until the very end. Of course they will, and then there'll be something else right after it. They got money flowing. I do not want to think of how much money I've put into the books because it's—I have every one. Oh yeah, yeah, they're not cheap. No, they're yeah. not. And then, um, and then that 
would oh just a bit of the preacher and uh, oh titans i saw second season of titans yeah, what did you think of it i i, I liked it I, it's it's interesting i um i don't like to give too many spoilers uh i, I do like like it's not really to me part of it was it's more drama stuff than actual titan stuff for right you know, titan comic book fighting mm. um but again i can understand with budget constraints you'd want to start doing a lot of that all the time it gets expensive, but they are developing Robin. Uh, sorry, Dick Grayson to go from Robin to Nightwing. Yeah, well, he um, makes the transition in the second season. Well, that, that's just mm-hmm. it. So I, I like that. Well, I see. Don't get too many spoilers here. Spoiler. Uh, I do like the character who plays Bruce Wayne. Uh, he does He's a good a great job. Great actor. He is very well. He, he does a, a good job of playing sort of the older statesman that Bruce Wayne would become. Um, you haven't seen him in the Batman suit, which is actually I like. I like him being more as the Bruce Wayne um, character, the Bruce Wayne, the mentor, the mentor. Yeah, and it's doing it does quite well. Uh, I liked it, and that will wrap it up for me. Sorry, guys. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, Beck, why don't we move on to you? Okay. Um, well, uh, let's see. New in the game in the in the hobby i've been watching uh, a few shows of course uh, now i can binge so i did finally finish off the boys and, oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. uh very enjoyable it'd be interesting to see where things go because it definitely ended in different places from where everything seemed to be going yeah uh i have started uh, amazon prime's the tick and uh it's certainly living up to all the previous uh, iterations of of the story. Well, it's because uh, Ben Eklund, ben, or, ben Edlund is works involved. on it. Yeah, he's been involved in all of them, right? All of them, but yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's hard it's, to say who I who I like. Like, I still like the animated one better. Well, the that's f- that's the one that we sort of discovered the tick with. Yeah, and, yeah, that's uh, the original. Well, the original would be the comic book. No, but original for us. Yeah. Roger Moore is my yeah, original. James Bond. So he's always the one that I have, like, uh, he's always one of my favorite James Bond, because he was my first James Bond. Yeah. You always remember your first, right, Dev? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I, I do find it interesting just seeing how he's uh, developed the world through the different versions. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, in the animated series, you've got uh, uh, Deflator Mouse and uh, American Maid uh, playing big roles. And then the first live action one, you've got uh, Bat Manuel, Manuel, and American Maid. <laughs> yeah. And uh, now, now uh, in this version, it's Overkill that's uh, being the uh, other hero, showing the other point of view of how things go. Yeah, I like uh, Arthur's and, story too. Yeah, Ar- Arthur's story is pretty good. I was, you know, leading into it, I had heard that there was an awful lot of, uh, you know, is the tick really just in Arthur's imagination? Yeah. So I was kind of surprised at how early they uh, they resolved the, the reality of the tick. Yeah. And he wasn't just part of Arthur's head canon. No. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, I was going to say, what did you think of the night, the AI uh, take on of uh, Knight Rider? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Danger Boat. That was kind <laughs> of interesting. <laughs> Especially since he's chosen to be male and chosen to be Yes. <laughs> kind of have to wonder about the what they're saying with that <laughs> um let's see other things that i've been watching uh on uh, netflix i uh, 
just finished watching uh, a Dutch series called Addies, which is uh, kind of a secret society sort of a, a show. So you've got the heroine Roja, who's come comes from a poor family and gets invited to join this secret society while she's at university. Uh, that's made up of the country's elite, hmm. and uh, so. You know, she's kind of forced between choosing between her family and what they need and uh, and helping out her own ambitions by making the contacts she needs through the secret society. But there's a, a definite supernatural element to it all as well, which is why I'm, I'm mentioning it. Because, uh, you know, there's, there's more going on with the secret society than mm, yeah. years, right? Because uh, her best tasked with bringing her in but at the same time he's doing his best to keep and you know just looking at it going okay well it's a secret society they do weird crazy things like secret societies do but why are you so scared of this and why do you think it's such a bad thing for her to join and as the show goes on you kind of discover why it's concerns okay well it's a secret society you're always supposed to have yeah (laughs) yeah i just Uh, sorry i was thinking of Sorry, sorry, Pat. Keep going. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, because that is, wouldn't it be interesting to see paranoia come to this? Is an animated show? <laughs> well, uh, you know, if Ben Ed- Edlund wanted to do something amazing, yeah, I, I think he could, he'd be the one who'd be able to pull it off. Yep. Uh, um, yeah, we did uh, watch Extraction as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it it had a lot of cliche sort of stuff going on in it. Yeah, or well, the tropes. Same, center. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of it all, I was saying, well, you know, one side or the other should have given up really early on because uh, the whole event cost everybody way, way, way more just in dollars. Yeah. Than, well, I uh, guess they were going with the uh, the sunken cost fallacy, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was going to say the one thing, if you saw it as well, and Dev, I liked the, his, um, his female helper or handler, Chris Helmsworth's... Uh, yeah, yeah. I, they they weren't very mercenary, were they? No, uh, but I do like the way she wasn't just you know a, a suit. No, no, she she got her hands dirty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting that it's uh, the Russos that were executive produced, and I think they also wrote the the screenplay. Oh, really? I didn't know. Yeah, that. so definitely a, a big Marvel connection through it all. Mm-hmm. The, you know, actors as well as uh, behind the scenes. Uh, let's see, what other things? Um, on Netflix, I've been watching a lot of anime. So uh, they've got uh, season four and I think it's four and five of Bleach. So finally able to catch up on that if you're interested in uh, Soul Reapers. And oh, uh, what did goes you watch on with the, the uh, Did you watch the Altered Carbon one? I just remembered, I just watched yeah. that one as well. You see, I started watching the first season, and Brenda lost interest in it, so I stopped watching it. And I haven't watched anything with Altered Carbon yet, mainly because I want to get into it at some point, and I keep on having other things coming in ahead of it. Yeah. Um, I've been watching this anime called Seven Seeds. I talked about it before, so basically um, there's an asteroid or something that's going to be wiping out civilization. Uh, The Japanese government decides, well... The Japanese government is the one we're focusing on, but all the governments decide to uh, work out contingencies for this on how to protect civilization. 
so what the Japanese do is several different teams uh, named after the different the four seasons uh, of people that basically get frozen and then wake up after the disaster and it's their job to rebuild society. Only some people know that they were chosen and that they're doing this and other people just, you know, happen to have been voluntold that they're doing it. <laughs> Next thing they know, they wake up in the future. And have to rebuild society. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's uh, you know, how they're dealing with their situation, discovering what actually happened as well as, uh, you know, dealing with the different groups and people that they meet. Um, overall, I like the, the story idea behind it, but uh, there's way too much plot armor going on. They're, you know, every oh. episode ends in a, in a, and a bit of a cliffhanger. Even the first season ends in a cliffhanger. Uh, but nobody ever actually finds themselves... Well, I think there's been like two deaths total in the whole series. Okay. So, Have you watched well, more uh, Lost in Space? No, I... We, uh, yeah, we got to I think it was episode two or three of the second season and we haven't touched it since. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, a show that, uh, or an anime that I kind of enjoyed the uh, first season of was High Score Girl. Uh, now this one is taking place in the 90s. Uh, it's a, a big homage to the, uh, the fighting arcade games of the 90s. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you've got, uh, this uh, kid, he's in middle school, discovers, uh, or he's just really into these video games and really doesn't pay attention to anything else. Uh, until he meets this uh, this who just totally kicks his butt, and so most of the series is him just trying to build this rivalry with her, right? Uh, but he's also building a friendship with her, uh, right? So they're they're enemies on the video screen, but uh, in real life uh, they're actually developing this romance, and this romance kind of pushes him into actually. Uh, trying to become an actual better person. He he uh, starts studying hard so that he can go to the same high school she goes to, and he just barely makes that. Uh, he gets a job so that he has some money so he can play more games and get and sort of be in her world because she's you know a member of one of the uh, richest families in Japan, and she's got all sorts of obligations. So from her perspective, it's balancing her obligations, family, as well as her desire to be playing these video games. Uh, and there's a love triangle that ends up developing. I thought I was kind of hoping the second season would either do a lot more of the love triangle or do a lot more of their relationship. But, and I guess it fell into that second season slump that things do because uh, it tended to kind of cover the same ground that the first season did. So I was a little hmm. disappointed with that. Hmm. I was going to say, the one thing I liked about Extraction is there's no male-female romance. Like, no. They know each other. No, but, the closest thing is the uh, the father-son romance of sorts that happens yeah. between him and the kid he's trying to rescue. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I like. It's like, okay, he's got a female friend. That's yeah. it. There's well, no romance. She, she does have some kind of feeling for him. Oh, yeah, but it doesn't... But it, it, it's not a romance, but you could see that it could become one. Uh, or they might have had something in the past, because she definitely cares about him more than other people. Than yeah. He cares about her. And yeah, more than other people on the team. Yeah. Well, I mean, she sacrifices how many lives trying to rescue him? Yeah, yes. exactly. You know, uh, 
when uh, things started going south, uh, I I think a real mercenary team would have said, okay, you got to get out. We'll get you out, but forget the mission. And when he says, no, I'm not forgetting the mission, it's like, okay, well, that's you've made your choice. Goodbye. Well, it's also especially we're not being paid for the mission anymore. So, yeah. yeah. Oops, sorry, spoiler. Yeah, it's a minor spoiler. Uh, let's see. Now, as far as uh, gaming goes, uh, Patrick mentioned we did do Starfinder. Now we're doing the beginner box version of Starfinder, not the actual game version of it. So there are differences. Uh, races give you special abilities, but it doesn't do anything as far as stat bonuses go. Uh, and there's a lot less variety as far as races are concerned. Um, and it was also our first try at a completely online format. Uh, so mm -hmm. we were using Discord for our uh, audio, and uh, using Roll Twenty for the uh, for the visuals. Yeah. Um, overall, I think that it worked pretty well. I mean, Patrick was on the the player side of it, so he probably has a better idea. No, it it did. It, like um, I'm, I'm like I said, uh, Roll Twenty is coming back big now because everyone's stuck in lockdown, mm -hmm. and I find it one of the like it has, if you go through the, I was going through all the different character um, sheets they have. Like they have tons of yeah. names in there that you can get. You have character sheets for, mm -hmm. and uh, with this, you know, and and it's nice to be able to see that you can move your character, you can do stuff with it, and it gives you know, well, especially for like for our D and D and that that we we have the maps and that for tactical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'll admit I was looking into Fantasy Grounds when we were first thinking about this, and uh, you know, a lot of people seem to think that it's better than Roll Twenty, okay. partly because of the person who's uh, behind Roll Twenty. Apparently, uh, yeah, there's been some. He, he's he's caused some in incidents with uh, a lot of people. A little yeah. PC, I think, at times. Um, but the thing I have about Fantasy Grounds, while the basic game itself is actually relatively cheap to get and goes on sale all the time, the content is books. Like um, we're doing oh, really? an edition, and uh, you know, I've I've paid I think twenty bucks max for any of the books because I'm buying the PDFs and I'm just working off the PDFs. But if I wanted to get Pathfinder Two for Fantasy Grounds, I'm paying as much as I do for the the actual paper book. Oh, the actual core rulebook, right? And that's definitely not what you want. No, no, that I find that very discouraging. Now, I mean, there's a lot of resources involved in it. Uh, apparently, character creation is really good with their character sheet and so on. It it actually works really well with the system and giving, making, helping you have a character that uh, or a character sheet that explains everything to you. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, if if you're just wanting a, a simple, inexpensive way to get things done, I I think Roll Twenty is not too bad. And I don't know uh, how this 100 meg limit on your files is going to affect me as we go on. I'm probably going to have to be deleting old maps and so on and characters. Yeah, but and that's I'm the thing also yeah, I'm also only planning to do one adventure, right? So it's, yes, it's not like we're doing. But it's also thing. still good for the D and D too, right? For practice for when we go back to D and D. Yeah. Again, who knows how long <laughs> this will be? Yeah. Going on. Well, uh, well, you know, the there are people, or I'm hearing two years uh, from people that are kind of in the know about how long we're going to at least be affected by all this. Uh, yeah, so but lockdown is probably going to be a lot 
over sure. a lot sooner. But uh, you know, the precautions and so on, we could be looking at two plus years. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, been over. It, it path, I like. I like. I said. I do like the roll twenty. It's been. It's been good to to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, as far as video games go, I've uh, I've been weaning myself off of City of Heroes. <laughs> I haven't been playing it as much. I find that happens when I get to because uh, I I rotate through my characters, so they're all about the same level. And when I get to my villains, I I tend to slow down a lot. Mainly okay. because they don't have a lot of very interesting villain stories going. No, and also, like you said, you still work for other people as opposed to becoming the guy who becomes a villain. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I've also reached a level where they are actively encouraging me to try and recruit other people, in, uh, which is a kind of double-edged sword because I really prefer going solo. Yeah. Uh, but also... There aren't that many people who play on the uh, villain side or the red side as uh, as the game goes. Yeah. So finding people to play with can, or to go on a mission with you can be a bit of a challenge at times. Um, yeah, so I I decided to get started onto XCOM Two again. Mm-hmm. Uh, start playing that, and you know that was as fun as I remember. Uh, and then a few days after I started that, I saw that uh, XCOM Chimera Squad was going to be released, and it was just released yesterday to the general public on Steam. So I I put in about three or four hours of that. Um, I guess it's kind of telling that uh, the first day or yesterday when it opened, I said I was telling all of you guys uh, that uh, I started my day <laughs> Chimera Squad and ended the day back on uh, XCOM Two: War of the Chosen. Yeah. Um, you're it, you didn't... It, it, it is an evolution of the game um, the mechanics are a little different uh, basically each combat uh, goes through uh, two or three stages so the first stage is the breach where you're just breaking into the room and uh, doing as much damage as you can when you're first getting in and then it gets into the strate- strategic mo- movement and shooting and so on um, a big difference is that you're not all your team moving and then all the computer's team moving. It actually alternates, right? So you'll have one of your characters and then they'll have one of their characters oh, and, so on and so on. Yeah. Um, so if you can take them out in the right order, then you can end up you know, uh, eliminating them before anybody has a shot on you. But uh, that's a lot harder to do than it sounds. A lot more planning, a lot more thinking. Oh, a lot of that plus, you know... I'm I'm going to be moving my character, and I've got all these easy targets near me. But the next guy that's going is way on the other end of the room, and he's going to be threatening some other characters of mine. So, <laughs> do I take a chance that I might be able to stop them, or do I just ignore him and take deal with what guys. I can deal with right here? Yeah. All right. So, a lot of, so a lot I, of I have a question for you. Yeah. So, are, are Dev? Do do you still have Dev and I or as characters in the XCOM? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, you are uh, my number one ranger. So you get to wear the snake suit all the time, and you're using the <laughs> special swords. Um, and uh, one of my favorite tactics for a ranger is uh, when I see the uh, red flare for the enemies coming down, I just plant you right on top of them. You've got this ability called Blade Storm, which means you attack uh, with your swords anything that uh, that moves near you. So you're standing right where they're coming down. They land and then try to get them into in, get themselves into position, and they're dead. Before they can go anywhere. <laughs> I'm confident. Yep. And uh, Devram in this iteration is a sniper. 
Excellent. Uh, yep. Yeah. So uh, now he's got the uh, the hunter's special weapon, so a special uh, uh, sniper rifle and pistol. Uh, I also gave him the uh, Icarus armor, which basically lets him go pretty much anywhere on the board. Um, and yeah, so uh, it my strategy is I use the team to weaken everything up, and then the sniper just positions themselves where they can see everything and just boom, 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 <laughs> because uh, he's got this ability called um, Death from Above. So as long as he gets a kill while he's higher than his opponent, he gets another action. Right, oh, so nice. he can just keep on killing everything until... because everything's already been weakened. It's you know just a death scene. So, so Dev's taking advantage of my my abilities to to make himself well, look good for his I was, his kills ratio. I was kind of hoping to get the two to have a bond, <laughs> but it it never happened. Uh, Devrim is bonded with a, a grenadier, um, and so I uh, I created this uh, this Japanese uh, character for you, this Japanese woman that I got you bonded with. <laughs> so she's also a sniper. I, I think you mean she's bonded to me. <laughs> no, no, no. You're you're bonded with this Nigerian uh, this Nigerian guy who's yeah. a grenadier. Well, I tried tried to do it otherwise, but the game said no, no. He he works better with this Nigerian guy. <laughs> <laughs> the game knew. The game yeah. knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't want to work with that guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that that's the thing about XCOM too. I really like building up the characters and building up the teams, and uh, I've reached the point where I could be at the end of the game, and I'm just, you know, just uh, keeping the emissions going, pulling down the uh, the avatar project meter so that it's only at one or two pips, uh, and then just keep on going through all the missions until I get everybody up to the colonel rank, and then I'll probably just stop playing the game start over again because i've done the end game so many different times I, I know what's coming i know i can beat it yeah um but going back to camara squad uh basically this is all taking place in a single city and uh you're there to um try and get the keep the peace because now you've got humans and aliens all living together and working together and there's different factions that are trying to break that up for whatever reason you know, humans who don't like the aliens, aliens who don't like the humans, or people that just have their own, this is how things ought to be done, and the real government right now isn't doing it properly. Right, and so you're trying to uh, keep all these this unrest under control, uh, and, you know, it, this time the, the, uh, the counter towards the end of the game is uh, just the city unrest. If uh, the city unrest overall gets too high, then the campaign's over. So you've got mm -hmm. to reach to the end of the campaign and get everything settled before city unrest gets too rough. Um, now, when I first uh, pointed out that Chimera Squad was going to be coming out, uh, one of our buddies, Eric Rowan, was saying that he really loved that. And then I pointed out to him that there's another game called Phantom Doctrine that's available on Steam. It basically has the same sort of mechanics, right? You're building up a team. You've got... Uh, um, a base to build up and uh, all sorts of research to do and so on. Uh, so it's got very similar mechanics to XCOM, but this one is taking place during the Cold War. So Ooh. you're dealing with uh, conspiracies during the Cold War. Yeah. Um, and uh, I have to admit, I kind of like that one a little better. It's It's got a much bigger challenge. One of my big issues with XCOM is you're building up this big team of, of uh, agents 
but you know you're sending them on missions and that's about it that's all there is for them to do uh whereas with phantom doctrine uh you got the missions to send them on but you also have to be researching upcoming missions and investigating events that are going on in different parts of the world and so you've got to do this delicate balance of sending your agents out to take care of this stuff but at the same time um having somebody in reserve so that when uh your a team gets shot up a bit you've got somebody to replace on the team and uh, and do the actual missions while uh uh, while your other pe- your A-listers are recovering, so it's a it's a, a more complex uh, uh, resource management system than uh, XCOM tends to have. So it's worth checking out, I think. Um, and yeah, I've taken up a lot of time here, so I think that's uh, pretty much uh, where I'll end it. Okay, uh, let's move on to Paul. I will literally be less than two minutes. Okay, it might not even be a minute. Um, what have I done? Uh, work. Uh, work hasn't stopped for me, obviously. Being in the waste industry, I just keep on going. Um, so not a lot has affected me in terms of this whole isolation thing that we're going through right now. But uh, other than that, I'm either working, sleeping, eating, or playing Division 2 with Pat. That's pretty much all I've done. Um, no. Pendragon. Yeah, well, for, and Pendragon. But you've already talked about that, so I don't really need to mention it. Um, I haven't watched too much. Uh, I have watched a little bit of Netflix, I guess. Um, but I haven't finished any show it, shows. It hasn't been any any uh, anything of major note. Obviously, from listening to all of you guys, I've added a few things to my list that I'll probably never get to. <laughs> because that's usually how it works. Um other than that, that's pretty much it for me. Yeah. That's it? Okay. Dwayne, that's go it. Ahead. Like I said, it was going to be quick. Wow. wow. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to be taking much more time than Paul did, really. Um, you know, it's it's been an odd few months. Uh, if anyone's been listening uh, to the podcast regularly, uh, for whatever reason, I've been really kind of apathetic about a whole bunch of things. I think and, the reason is pretty clear. Well, maybe. But, uh, you know, keeps that's kept going. Um, so there have been a few things I've been up to. Uh, Television-wise, uh, start watching the second season of Roswell, New Mexico. Oh, yeah. And, uh, uh, is that the, the old season with the, uh, the alien kids? No, no, no. This is the uh, new update that they started doing last year. Okay. Hadn't even heard of it. Um, I'm liking it. I'm liking it quite a bit, actually. Uh, excuse me, I'm just dealing with a dragon that's trying to get away. <laughs> a dragon? Oh, yeah. yes, you're, yeah. you're a lizard, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... So anyways, uh, Roswell, New Mexico uh, is based upon the same books as uh, the original Roswell series from a number of years back. Uh, And has basically taken that basic concept and moved it so that instead of being set in high school, it's actually set uh, 10 years after 
these kids all graduated high school. And that, and now they're they're doing some very interesting things with it, and I'm looking forward to where it's going from here. And that, so I'm actually caught up on that. They've aired, I think it's like four episodes so far. Yeah. Only started, only started the second season just a little bit ago. Uh, I'm also, you know, doing a couple of little things. Um, I finally saw the last couple of issues of The Flash from last season. So <laughs> there's that. That took a while. Uh, yeah, like I said, apathy. It's uh, it's amazing. Um, I saw the first episode of a show on Netflix called uh, Wu Assassins. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I started so watching I it and I couldn't get too far through it. I think I'm going to see some more of it um, whenever I get around to it. It, it was amusing. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's an interesting concept. And you got to love the whole notion of, you know, a mystic warrior, and part of the ability is that it, it automatically protects his identity. Okay. I do, I do find it amusing to have, like, in the first episode, his monk identity is played by Mark Dacascos. And uh, Dacascos, I first encountered him, and of all things, the adaptation of Double Dragon, if you, re if you remember that old video game. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, didn't uh, wasn't there one where also Jean-Claude Van Damme did one called Dra Double Dragon? <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, that was that uh, was uh, where, he, where he played both roles. I, th yes. I think it was Twin Brothers. Yeah, but uh, now this is based on the old 80s uh, arcade game. Uh, yeah, that that was too, I think. No, no, it was more, he was so. more no. cop. It was cops things. Yeah. It, was, it was called Double Dragon. Yeah. Yeah, I think one was a cop, one was a crook. Yeah. Type deal. But yeah. Uh, but uh, the other place that I know Tocasco's from, there's an excellent French movie called uh, The Brotherhood of the Wolf. And I, rec I recommend it to uh, anyone. It's, uh, it's really good. It's period, like, action horror type thing. And really great stuff um, but yeah so far as that goes that's about it I rewatched Crisis just for fun mm -hmm. and that, uh, well, they, I did enjoy it they planned to rebroadcast that didn't they because uh, with the sudden stop in productions they uh, said okay well let's go back to Crisis and, uh, and re-air that to help everybody get caught up yeah, I think I heard about that. I don't know if it made it to Canadian television, though. And of course, I mean, for example, in Canada, to watch the Flash part of it, you had to watch it on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And of course, the episode's still on Netflix. Yep. Um, one of the Have things that I've started gonna... uh, Black Lightning, because that finally came out again. No, yes. no, I haven't. Uh, it's definitely on the list. And that. 
I'll be right uh, back. I'm just going to get more coffee. Be right back. Mm. Mm, coffee. Fair enough. Actually, coffee. I don't even drink coffee. But... <laughs> <laughs> you are missing out, sir. Oh. But uh, on other stuff, uh, gaming-wise, I've mostly been busy with this uh, West Marches-style Earth Dawn campaign. And that uh, played a game of that just uh, two days ago. And that was a blast. Um, I'm playing, as I think I mentioned before, a dwarf wizard. And he's now up at Circle 5, which is the start of Journeyman right. here in Earthdawn. And so the power boost is very, very noticeable and kind of remarkable and lots of fun stuff. <laughs> so uh, so it was, uh, it was a lot of fun on Friday. And that, that was kind of my birthday treat to myself. <laughs> Was yes. playing that. Happy birthday, Dwayne. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and that reading wise, um, there've been a lot of nice sales on uh, through Kobo and other ebook retailers. So I've been taking advantage of that. Uh, picked up the first Kate Daniels novel by Alona Andrews, which is actually just a pseudonym for a husband and wife author team. And that was fun. I, I enjoyed that. Um, right now I've started rereading a book by Teresa Edgerton called The Queen's Necklace. Uh, Edgerton is one of these authors whose career sadly kind of petered out. Uh, a shame, I think. Uh, I really enjoyed her stuff. Uh, Comics-wise, to April on Marvel Unlimited. And starting to get into some stuff that I knew was coming, but I've almost been dreading. Mm -hmm. the, main, the main thing is uh, um, a versus X, uh, in other words, Avengers versus X-Men. And this is the storyline that is a terrorist phase of the X-Men that only ended about two years ago. Basically, you know, six years of odd X-Men stuff coming up but hmm. there's there's bright there's, uh, where I'm at right now uh, the superior Spider-Man storyline is starting to fall into place uh, so this was Dan Slott's story where Dr. Octopus ends up taking over Peter Parker's body yeah mm. And uh, as far as yeah, as far as he's concerned, Parker is dead. This is his second chance of life, and he's looking at Peter Parker and all the advantages that his powers give him and the positions that he's in. Since he's actually a fairly intelligent guy, and he's all, you know. 
I can do better. I can be a better Spider-Man than Parker ever was. Well, isn't that what Craven did? Yeah, because Craven uh, took over for a little Craven while. Hunter, that's what he did in the last the Craven's last hunt. Well, that was slightly different. That was Craven being ritualistic and needing to replace his prey and stuff. And it was J.M. DeMatteis did some really weird stuff right. with all that. Well, I mean, it's, it's very good. It's very good. Don't get me wrong, but it's strange. It's really strange. I mean, like Craven's Lost Hunt is probably the biggest exploration of madness that they've ever bothered to do yeah. in a mainstream Marvel book. Um, but uh, the whole Doc Ock thing, that lasted, I think, like two, three years, where it's Dr. Octopus being Spider-Man in his own way. <laughs> so uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see that, uh, you know, even though I know how it all ends. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So that's really about it and stuff. Okay. You know, it's been home and, you know, I have played a few more hours of Neverwinter Nights. I'm on Shadows of Undertide right now, the first expansion, and I'm stuck in a fight at the moment that's a unbelievably brutal fight against a massively powerful undead. And this time around, I'm playing a rogue. I'm not playing a cleric. So I keep losing badly. <laughs> so I might actually, it's funny, most of the guides I've read about uh, Neverwinter Nights for this particular module talk about how much more difficult it is and that uh, you should not feel guilty about adjusting the difficulty settings. For this fight, I might have to <laughs> because I've come at it several different ways and I just haven't, because I have a cleric with me, but I can't control their spells or what they do or anything. That's a lot of problems with a lot of AI games where, you know, your 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 person you're with, like, either goes in the way or starts doing stuff. You're like, why, why are you doing that? Why, why did you go there? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, the cleric will waste all their turn attempts on one ordinary zombie, for example. Oh, hmm. um, so, yeah. So, you know, if I were playing a cleric, I think I could find a way to beat this guy, but uh, I think I'm going to have to adjust the, uh, <coughs> adjust the difficulty rating down and just get through it. So, yeah. So, that's it for me. Okay. Um, well, so, should we have our guest go, Diff? Sure, why not? Vaughn, you always um, like go last because you're the most yeah. important. Okay, Vaughn, um, can, you, can you tell us a bit about what you've been, uh, you know, binge-watching, what kind of movies and stuff you're into? Are you playing any games? That sort of thing? Absolutely. Um, so, in a similar way that was mentioned before, um, I actually, for the most part, my work life is continued. I, I already worked from home in my, like, I have my studio set up at home. So 
honestly, there's not been very many changes for me. And my wife actually often teleworks. So um, she's basically just increased the frequency that she's doing that. So um, sort of my day-to-day life hasn't changed very much, um, which given the pandemic is, I, I know I'm one of the few, but it's it's sort of interesting to watch this unfold from the point of view that my day-to-day routines haven't changed. Uh, that said, so there's been an, an, like a number of different things. Um, just before the lockdown really happened, I was watching um, Friend, the Picard streaming the Picard television show, which I thought was horrific. Uh, mm-hmm. Just an utter abomination from what my point of view of what Roddenberry's vision was. Um, so that I found profoundly disappointing. Um, it took me a little while to uh, sort of rage watched it and was getting more irritated <laughs> as time went on. Rage watch, that's a good term. Yeah, and I, I kind of feel, um, I don't know if you guys watch Red Letter Media, but I did feel that uh, oh, some of yes. their, yeah, yeah. their takes on it, and I think they're actually going to do a Plinket uh, long-form review of the series of the first season oh, uh, coming up, which I'm really looking forward to. Yeah. Um, Aside from that, I haven't been watching too many new things. Uh, my wife and I have actually gone backwards in time and have been watching uh, Tom Selleck uh, DVD Magnum PI, um, which I watched when I was a kid and whatnot. But it's been quite a bit of fun to Amazing. sort of, you know, to, yeah, you know, it's it's a. I'm not going to say the show is the greatest show in the world or anything, but it has its moments, um, in a positive and negative sense, <laughs> and it's but it's been a lot of fun. Um, Honestly, I'm not much of a video gamer. I used to be, and I kind of pulled out of it partially because of just my work routines and just doing other things. So I actually haven't been playing any video games at all. Uh, In terms of role-playing games, not so much playing, but I'm big into original Dungeons & Dragons. Like, we're talking 1974. So coming out of Chainmail. um, Dev and I's favorite version of D&D. I love it. I mean, honestly... um, there are issues, so the way I kind of look at a lot of uh, original D&D is there are gaps in the rules, and each referee has to come up with their own interpretation of what some of these sort of open-ended rules mean, how one interprets them, and it takes a lot of work on a referee's part, but if you... Come at it from the base of Chainmail, the uh, the miniatures combat game that came first, and then you you know sort of look at original D and D, the three little booklets from Chain from like sort of the prism of Chainmail, and then and I know this is you know a little bit eye rolling, but if you take the J.R. Holmes edited basic D and D from 1977. Um, and there's a lot of references in the Holmes basic to advanced Dungeons and Dragons, but that was added in the edit. Many, many ways the Holmes version actually points to original D&D, again, the three booklets in the little brown box. If you uh, sort of use all of those sources and use that to help interpret, you can actually create one hell of a game that, in my not-so-humble opinion, is one of the, the best versions of what a role-playing game actually could. The sky's the limit. It's very imaginative. Referee, uh, along with the players, can create a really sort of living world that's very different than... um, I've played a little bit of uh, 3E and 3.5, and I guess that's Pathfinder as well. And then I haven't played 4E or 5E, but I 
find the um, mechanics for those games. Like, there's a lot of crunch to the rules that I find really distasteful personally. And yeah, I much I prefer, yeah, I, I really prefer sort of the open-ended approach that OD had. And then, I mean, if you're interested in, like, a critique, it gets kind of fascinating. Um, there was a split between Gary Gijax and his co-writer, Dave Arneson, um, and that actually, uh, some people have made the argument that that split, um, and there were legal repercussions to that split in the mid to late 70s, is what actually led to the creation of Advanced Dungeons and Dragons because Guy Jackson TSR tried to basically cut Arneson out, at least as I understand it. Yeah, I but watched I, a documentary about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you've watched Secrets of Blackmore, is that the that's documentary? The yeah, yeah, that's the one. Um, I actually know uh, Griff, one of the uh, documentary filmmakers involved oh. in that project. Um, not not like we've actually gotten to know each other just over the last few months through the yeah. film. I would highly recommend that. It is uh, Secrets of Blackmore is a stunning film, mm. and if they, if they can do it right, if if things go well for them, and the pandemic is throwing everybody for a loop, but that's actually the first documentary film, and what they like to do is a series. Um, and that film, not only does it showcase, n- n- like, not just the origins of D&D, but the evolution of role-playing, you know, from the 60s wargaming tradition into role-playing, but it really showcases two guys. Dave Arneson, who, again, was D&D's co-creator and the really the first dungeon master, as we know the term, before people like Gijax did it. Uh, his Blackmore campaign in... The Twin Cities in, you know, in Minnesota were, were sort of legendary. And then there's another guy who doesn't get the credit he deserves at all named David Wesley. And David Wesley, uh, also from Minnesota, um, they did, uh, him and Arneson together, did a lot of uh, sort of the early work on what we sort of have come to know as what a role-playing game is. And they made it up from scratch. Like it's just it blows my mind. So if you're it's on Vimeo, I, I can find the link if you need it, but you can rent it for four or five bucks. And right. it's it's like a two hour film and it's funny, it's insightful, it's just it, it's just terrific. So well, I, I really liked watching it too, because it was interesting to see like you're right, they had nothing like there was they made up the rules for doing role playing. Like there was chain mail and war games, but no role playing. And then it went from that to, okay, here's how you can make a character. Here's how the character will re- interact. And here's how, you know. So I thought it was really impressive. And I hadn't known about Arnest before. Because, you know, because everything's Gygax. D&D's Gygax. It was like, yeah. wait, there was someone before who, you know, was also extremely instrumental to developing it. Absolutely. And I mean, this is no disrespect to Gygax. There is sometimes, particularly in, in sort of fan circles with early D&D, is there's kind of a schism where people are like, well, I'm a Gygax guy or I'm an Arneson guy. And it's like, yeah. I find the relationship between the two men, and of course, both are dead now, that what happened, very unfortunate. And it's um, it's a little bit like how I feel about the relationship between uh, like in comics, people like Stan Lee and Steve Vitko or Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, where... Yeah. There's a, there's a wistful part of me that's like, what if that had never happened? Like, who knows where, you know, in role-playing games and D&D might have gone if this kind of split hadn't happened. Um, I, I think it's fair to say, and the, and the documentary goes into this more, that Arneson's approach is much more open-ended. So it 
you didn't have to have a rule for everything. And if you didn't have a rule in the book, you just made it up. You did it fairly. You tried to arbitrate as a referee as fairly and equitably as possible. And then you tried to be consistent with that ruling going down the road. Now it feels like when I look at a game like uh, like D&D 5e or whatever, it really feels like a bit like Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, that they're trying to almost create a rule for everything. One of the most fascinating evolutions, and you can actually find this, is back to OD&D and then like the early publications from TSR, like Strategic Review and Dragon Magazine and whatnot, there's an evolution in how Gijax viewed it. And it's amazing to look at. Like Gijax would, would say things in OD&D like, there's not a rule for everything. There's a lot of gaps. You have to make things up. We don't feel that everybody should be playing the, way, the same way everywhere. But they ran into a problem with convention play where everything was so different and different referees interpreted things. So in a way, you can make an argument that advanced Dungeons & Dragons actually tournament Dungeons & Dragons. Very, very orthodox, very, very rigid. But Gijax, later on into the late 70s and 80s, with uh, like in the pages of Dragon Magazine, would say things like, you know, and this is the evolution, would say things like, hey, if you're not playing advanced Dungeons & Dragons exactly by the book, then you're not playing D&D at all, and that's improper, it, you know, it's quote-unquote illegal, you're not playing it right. And that evolution from like 1974 to 1979 or so is amazing to me. Yeah. Well, and you're right though. It is like the it's same for I play um, war games like uh, Warhammer 40k and stuff like that. And like yeah, when you get to the tournaments, it makes sense. The same as you, you want stringent rules because you got people from coming from all over the place. So it makes sense that at the convention you have to have okay, here's the rules that are in place. Period. No house rules. Yeah. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I mean, the thing is, like, I, I've run, we've all run and played games, and we always play loose sometimes the rules. Like, my my big thing for running is I want the story to move forward. I don't want to have it stopped by a rule. Right? <laughs> so if, if the rule gets in the way of the, the gameplay and the fun, throw the rule away. You know, exactly. Or modify it. Just have vivid memories trying to play th uh, third edition and having a very rules lawyer style uh, dungeon master referee, and it was just like the reaction you wanted to take had to be looked up and cross referenced, and there would be these breaks in play where you know it would take twenty minutes to figure something out, and it's just it's so boring to me because I'm with you. I, I just want the story. I want to you know see how game you know and and the actions that the players are taking through their characters and see how everything evolves and have fun yeah and it's just i found third edition really not fun but i mean again that's that's more on the personality of the of the people that were involved rather than a see i i really enjoyed uh, 3.5 because i thought that it completely opened up what the experience could be yes there were rules for pretty much everything but I loved the fact that if I wanted to play a monster-based character, I could. Well, you could uh, before. Uh, not really. I mean, if I wanted to, if I wanted to be uh, an ogre character under Second Edition D and D, there really wasn't much. No, but uh, just make it up. Well, yeah, but now you. I have a I have a were bear running around in Pendragon. I have yeah. a half demigod in Pendragon, and then there's four dev. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the past, like the like the thing is, is that 
you know, to, to those who are comfortable just, you know, going freestyle, that's great. Yeah. Not all of us can go there. Yeah, you know, I mean, like, like and that's, if, that's where Street Fighter did do a good job for that. The advantage you know. of a structure is that there is a more consistent level of role play to it, right? It, uh, I find that when you're just kind of doing things on the fly, um, you, you start seeing things going towards, well, this is what I want to have happen. Uh, and so this rule that I we used two months ago, we're just going to ignore so that what uh, what we want to have happen now happens. And that just takes away from the, the realism of the world in my mind. Well, now, the, the, pro the problem I have with 3.5 is they could have done all of that with character creation and con those kind of concepts without also affecting the actual tactical way in which the game plays. Oh, the, absolutely. The, intro the introduction of the, the, the crazy, you know, everyone has to be on a map, you have to know exactly what millimeter you are, what facing you are, like, all these things matter. I, if I wanted to play that kind of game, I would just play it like a, a war game, a, a, um, a tabletop... Uh, miniature game. A tabletop miniature game. I agree but with that's you. Not, that's not the kind of experience I'm trying to get out of D&D. D&D was originally a theater of the mind type of game. It's, it's a game where, sure, you might have a map where you see locations in the room you're in. And you might have like a little token saying, okay, I'm here, I'm here, that guy's over there, here's where the guys are coming from. But it doesn't need to be more detailed than that. And the fact that made it down to like the exact millimeter is important. Go, oh, does my fireball actually fit inside the circle? That's that's something that that to me seems to be coming directly from you know like the yellow box or red box video games that came out uh, in the eighties and nineties from TSR, and they just kind of translated that into um, uh, bringing that to uh, to the actual tabletop. And I was mm -hmm. not a fan of that at all. Yeah. Interesting. I, Secrets of Blackmore makes the argument, so when you're watching the documentary, it makes the argument that, um, and I'm, my German is awful, so, but that basically was a movement of uh, wargaming for actual military officers going into the 19th century. So you would have um, what they called like a rigid Kriegspiel, so a rigid wargaming where all the rules were really, really ironed out. The problem was military officers, if you wanted to do something kind of outside the rules, you couldn't. And coming out of, I think it was in the 1890s or so, there were um, a move to what was called free Kriegspiel, which is basically the invention of a referee, an impartial referee to actually sort of evaluate what's happening in the game and make on-the-spot adjudications to, to resolve certain issues. So... In many ways, like the David Wesley and Dave Arneson gaming coming out of the 60s grew on that kind of free war gaming or free Kriegspiel uh, innovations to start to make an actual role-playing game outside of a miniatures war game. Um, I mean, I get the argument that, you know, um, you need more structure sometimes, but I, I, the only thing I would caution is... That sort of implies that something like original Dungeons and Dragons does not have a structure, and I'd argue it actually does. It's just how you interpret it, and it it, it takes sort of some time to kind of get what OD and D was doing, and it's it is a very different gaming um, sort of situation or experience than what later gaming is. I'd actually argue that one of the things that's really freeing about it, though, is the exact sort of free wargaming aspect of it, 
compared to later versions. Again, it's not a you know it's a, it's a matter of preference. It's not an argument that one is better than the other. Um, and maybe a, a better way to get at this is there's a podcast. It's it's actually a lot of fun, and it's done by actors. They're very very good. Uh, called Fear Initiative. Out there, it's been going on for a couple of years, and they used uh, fifth edition of D and D to play it. And it's fascinating for somebody like me to listen to it because on the one hand, I enjoy it quite a bit and I like listening to podcasts while I'm drawing and illustrating and whatnot. But it uses the 5e engine and there are a lot of things like, you know, perception checks and just a series of checks, insight checks and whatnot, where, you know, your character meets an NPC, NPC tells you something and make an insight check to determine if that NPC is telling you the truth or not. And I'm like, wow, that is so different than sort of my take on gaming, which is the only way to know if an NPC is telling the truth or not is to investigate it. Literally, your character has to take actions, talk to other people, do research to figure out if what the NPC was telling you is the truth or not. And if you don't do a very good job or, you know, what have you, there may be consequences to it. I dislike having things like that come down to a simple dice roll. Mm. I'm not a fan of that as a mechanic. Um, and I feel that in many ways where D&D has moved to now is doing exactly that. But if you have played, so like the counter argument to it, and one is not necessarily righter than the other, it's just a different take and a different argument, if you have played with a referee or a dungeon master that you feel is arbitrary, you feel is maybe not fair, and having a mechanic to sort of solve those weird role-playing situations where I can't tell if what I just heard is true or not, you really distrust the referee, um, then you have a mechanical way of solving the problem over and above you know, what you as a player choose to do and i sort of get that as an argument it really comes down to think if i was going to sort of put it in a nutshell old school gaming does require quite a bit of trust between the players and the referee and if something breaks that trust you know the 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 campaign or the even if it's a module where you think it's the players think something is arbitrary and the referee isn't being consistent and they just quit so it's a problem well, uh, another aspect of it, though, Vaughn, is the difference between the player and the character. Um, like, uh, an, an 18-19 intelligence just isn't something that your average player is likely to have. There just aren't that many super geniuses out there. So uh, how do I roleplay that my character has has been told this and I've got Sherlock Holmes intelligence and I can read every little detail about what this person is doing to figure out, yeah, they're telling me a lie right now. Sure. Where as a player, I just can't figure that sort of thing out. Right? I, I would tend to make the argument, at, and this is only my take on it, of course, I would tend to make the argument that uh, a good referee would take the sort of abilities of each character, particularly as they rise in level, and reflect that. So rather than, like, if you're playing a character that has an 18 intelligence, and you know, in OD&D, that's the best you can get unless you do a special quest or a wish or what have you, yeah. um, you know, then you, you don't necessarily sort of 
so manage every single thing is you just move that information out and then there's always been i mean it's a house rule for od and something like an ability check if push comes to shove but honestly my my thing is if if your if your character is basically sherlock holmes and move that information out it's, you know it, it gets into refereeing philosophy is if you feel that say it if, if you disconnect players character from what's actually happening so they I, I don't know a stupid example there's green slime coming you know hanging above a door in a dungeon and you know everybody uh, a character with 18 intelligence is listening at the door and has had a lot of experience and they're fourth level and you know so on and so forth I would argue it's unfair for the referee to use something like a green slime and drop it on him as a gotcha trap hey, right. I think that's that's silly but I think that's something that a good referee would understand and facilitate. Hey, mm. You know, if you're if it's a bad referee and is like, you know, uh, you made a listen check or something and you, you didn't hear it, so too bad for you, sad day. I would argue that's pretty unfair and that's a bad referee. So my feeling is that sort of the golden rule of old school gaming is a lot of common sense approaches, making on the spot rulings that are fair and fair being defined as what's in the character, what the players and characters' previous experiences are and whatnot, and you know, adjudicating it as fairly as possible. Um, and being very open with the players so that you actually are having a discussion with the players and what's happening in the game rather than just being, you know, dictating things from on high or something. I, not every referee is necessarily good at it. And again, if players, for whatever reason, don't really trust their referee to interpret things or adjudicate things fairly, then you do, in old school play, have a significant problem and it's hard to overcome that. I'll agree with you. And there are different play styles because uh, there's, I mean, there's the uh, I want to tell the story DM uh, who's really going to be flowing with the rules and what works best for the story but you also get those dms and the players who love these kinds of games where it's the dm versus everyone else uh and i think that kind of a game would definitely need to be rules heavy just to be because you can't trust the dm right off the bat because it's me against you I was going to say, we should probably get back on track and get Dev to do his. Yeah, I was going to say, we've yeah. kind of moved away from weeks of the hobby and more into like a segment three discussion about uh, old school versus new school <laughs> that gaming is theory. Um, <laughs> we do this all the time. Totally fine, though. We <laughs> do this all the time. Not unusual. <laughs> yeah, Bob, I, I don't know how many of these podcasts you've had a chance to listen to, but if we, don't yeah. go off on a, if we don't go off on a tangent... It's a it's very odd podcast for us. Yeah, yeah true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'll move on to my uh, the end of, ending of segment one with the stuff I've been up to. Um, for role-playing games, I'm still running my Star Wars role-playing game that I'm now doing over, over Discord. We're going to have a, a session coming up in uh, uh, next week uh, at the end of next weekend on a Monday morning because it's going to be May the 4th. So we've all decided to take the day off, and we're just going to play some Star Wars during the day. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm also running uh, for a bunch of the people that I've become really, really close friends with going on Geek Nation Tour trips. Mm. Um, I've made a, a bunch of really close friends, and I've got a Star Wars game that I'm running for them. 
I, and again, because none of us live in the same city, I've been doing that over Discord. We were doing it once a month for like the past, say, year or so, although we took like maybe a six-month hiatus. Um, but now we're down to doing it weekly, and the guys are super into it, and we're having a really good time. And uh, I'm, I'm, they've decided to go into the, the Force and Destiny um, ver- port version or part of the game, so we're, we're touching on more um, Force stuff. And um, I'm really enjoying that because it's an aspect of the game that we haven't really, I haven't really experienced yet or gotten to play with. Uh, in addition to that, again, we've had our uh, Pendragon game, as Pat was talking about. Um, nothing more than that has happened yet, although we're looking at maybe a couple other games that we want to start up because we're going to be doing this over the long term for the next month, few months, half a year, maybe two years. Who knows? Um, for video games, um, actually, I want to talk about TV and movies first. Uh, so since we've got a, a ton of time to watch stuff, I've been watching a ton of stuff. Uh, for movies, I watched a really weird superpower movie called Code 8. Uh, it came out relatively recently on Netflix. Um, it that deals was, uh, with... Hemsworth Brothers show, wasn't it? Uh, no, that one's not Hemsworth. That's um, Stephen Amal from the Arrow oh, Universe. Right, right. Plays, Arrow, plays one Arrow of the characters. Universe. Yeah. 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 So it's yeah. yeah, it's it's not the Hemsworth brothers, it's the ML cousins. Oh, oh is, is the other kid also an ML? Robbie Amel is and Stephen Amel's cousin. Okay. They were both in the Arrowverse. Okay, awesome. Uh so anyway, it's a it's a really good movie about a world in which powered individuals are second class citizens. So there's laws against them using their powers in the open and they have to be strictly regulated and there's cops that track these people down and they've created these weird robots that uh, will just murder anyone who starts using powers. Um, And it's the story about, it's a very, very low level, like street crime level guy uh, who's just trying to look out for his mom, trying to make some money. And he gets involved in like this world of drugs and so forth. It is very good, uh, very brutal, but I really enjoyed that. Uh, and I'm watching another movie right now, which is a completely different genre called In the Shadow of the Moon. And that takes place, it's, it's, it's a very weird movie. It starts off with a serial killer in 1988, and then the serial killer kind of gets murdered, uh, and the cop who, who um, witnessed the death of the serial killer he's kind of haunted by it and it kind of affects him. And then, so nine years later, all of a sudden the same crimes start happening again. And, uh, and at this point he's now become a detective. And so he becomes a detective on the case. And then at the end of that, uh, kind of segment, uh, th- that third, it, then it jumps to, uh, whatever, nine years after that, 2006, I think. And now he's, uh, like a just grizzled private eye. He's off the force. He's, living out of his car so like his 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 whole world has completely been altered by the events that happened in those two um nine or the two incidents that happened nine years apart and so he's trying to track down and figure out what is happening why these people are getting murdered who this serial killer is how come this serial killer dies and keeps coming back how come this serial killer only happens every nine years um how why this person seems to have all this information about him personally Anyway, it's it's a very, very weird movie. It's a very cool movie. I didn't get a chance to finish it, unfortunately. I was watching it late last night and just ended up falling asleep. So I'm, I'm at the portion where he's starting to unravel the mystery in 2006. And it is very cool. And I'm looking forward to finishing that off. Uh, and then kind of going back to TV shows, uh, Jan and I watched this weird show. It's not really weird. It's, it's, it's about um, 
I kind of class divide. It's called the Outer Banks. It takes place on a small uh, peninsula, I guess, in uh, Florida or something. Um, a place where it's warm, where there's a, a class divide <laughs> between the warm. rich. Yeah, a place where it's warm because they're always in like uh, short shorts and no one's wearing shirts and they're running around on the beach. So it, th- there's a class divide between the rich people on the island and the poor people on the island. And so each kind of keeps to their own segregated communities and there isn't a lot of interaction between them. But um, like like one of the kids, it's almost like a Romeo and Juliet falls in love with, so a, a kid from the wrong side of the tracks falls in love with a girl from the from the rich side of the tracks. And, and there's this whole mystery about his father who went missing and he's been looking after, looking, trying to find this treasure that uh, of a sunken ship that happened, you know, 50 100 years ago or whatever and so there's there's all there's all this kind of background story to it It, it's very interesting um and it's you know good looking teenagers running around um playing in the in the in the water so that was an interesting i i didn't think i was going to like it because at first it seemed like it was going to be you know just about these rich kids and how spoiled they are but it's actually deals more about how the poor kids are interacting with the the rich spoiled kids so it wasn't quite as bad as i was expecting and then another show that Jen and I are watching is called Money Heist. And this is actually a Spanish um, show about a group of kind of professional thieves who are put together to do this crazy ultimate crime where they go and take over the Spanish mint and make it look like it's a robbery that's interrupted and now they've taken hostages. But their whole plan in the background is to just sit there occupied as long as possible and just print money and just walk off with the money that they're printed at the mint. It's brilliant it's so good there's a a story between several of the characters who that ends up kind of um causing chaos and turmoil amongst the group of uh the thieves and uh some of the the hostages are acting like idiots so then things happen anyway it's it's a crazy show i'm really liking it um even though it's actually in spanish there's english subtitles and you can actually listen to the, the show dubbed in english as well and they do a really good job with the like the voice acting so it doesn't really throw you off having it um having it be in english even though they're originally speaking spanish okay it's not a and then dubbing. I, what's that it's not a horrible dubbing like the japanese movies they made fun no, of no 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 <laughs> it's nothing like that it's actually it's actually really really like high quality um uh voice dubbing um, but if you have it dubbed and you also have the subtitles, you're going to see a lot of disconnect because it's almost as if the, the dubbing, it, it's, it's more of a interpretation of what was being said and the, uh, the translation in the, the subtitles is maybe more direct. So you, you kind of see differences in the words that are used and, and kind of even like the theme of the, the, the statements that are being said, but it, it's, it's, they're kind of still along the same lines. Um, uh, speaking of documentaries, uh, we've also gotten into a bunch of documentaries over the past couple of weeks. Um, I'm a huge fan of uh, European football, like proper football, the, the game where you hit the ball with your foot. So I started watching this two, two seasons of this documentary called Sunderland Till I Die about a team in the northeast of England called Sunderland. Um, they come from the town of Sunderland. They're the only team in that town. So they're a huge part of the community in which they're embedded in. And the, the first season starts with them having been relegated from the Premier League, which is like the, the top division of the game, to the level below that called the championship. And so that drop means that they've lose out a bunch of money that's um, kind of available to them. So now they're, they're looking to get rid of some of the players they have. They're looking to bring in new players. Um, their contracts are extremely high for 
uh, for a team that's in the championship. So they're trying to find a way to get out of this situation and get back into the Premier League so that they can start making money and pay these players again. Well, th that, that season ends, and this is maybe a spoiler, but if you know anything about the way Sunderland's kind of um, fortunes have gone over the last few years, they actually end up getting relegated to the next level down that same that same season. So season two of the show starts with them now at like the um, I think it's called the first division. It's three levels down from the very top leagues. They're making almost no money. They had to fire a bunch of their people. They had to let a bunch of their players go. So now they're the the, the team is in total turmoil, and they bring in a new director. A new owner comes in to buy the club, and now they're trying to find a way to get out of that that situation and back into at least the championship for the next year. And uh, and it's fantastic. It's a great series. Uh, you get to hear from all the other uh, players that take part in it. You get to hear from the the executives. You get to hear from all the fans and what they're thinking about how it's going. And of course, this is being filmed kind of as the season is progressing. So at the beginning, they don't know how it's going to end up. Uh, crazy, crazy documentary. I really liked it. And since we're in a time when there's no actual football available, it, it got me at least a flavor of games happening. So I really enjoyed that. So that documentary then led me into another documentary, this one about Formula One racing. And F1 racing, holy crap, over the last two years have been absolutely crazy. There have been some great storylines, and I really enjoyed watching this, uh, the F1 documentary, also on Netflix. So I, can that, that, lot, I can tell you a lot about the F1 stuff, because my dad follows that religiously. Oh, is he so, into it? Totally. Oh, he's been into it since... I mean, he used to take part in that kind of racing back when he was my age. Okay. So... He was, he was part of the pit crew. And uh, so I, I know a lot about um, the F1 stuff and they, they used to, it used to be Indy and F1 were, were sort of together, but they had a, a split in terms of what they wanted to do with it. Mm -hmm. Indy became really, it's, it almost became like a cheap NASCAR type thing. Yeah. And Indy seems and, to be more, more on oval tracks, whereas um, the, yeah, the Formula um, One stuff is all on street tracks. It's a lot of street tracks. Um, well, that's not entirely true. They have special tracks made that just have a lot of turns. It's not sure. all making left turns like NASCAR. Yeah. So, like, if you ever see the um, the track in Abu Dhabi, uh, over there in the Middle East, that okay, track. So, is Abu just Dhabi is one crazy. of my absolute favorite tracks to to race on. So, okay, um, I have this on my iPad. I, I've, I've had this for you know maybe three or four years. I have a game called uh, oh, I don't remember what it's called, but it's 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 a driving game where you get you know you you get different cars, you work on them, you put money into it, and not real money, but like in game money, and then kind of um, improve the cars, and then you go and race and do all these uh, these these races. They, they introduced Formula One into that about two years ago. And uh, so this Formula One documentary got me back into that Formula One game. So then I started actually racing some of these real tracks that they've imported into the game with like all the actual turns and everything. So Abu Dhabi mm -hmm. is fantastic. Silverstead is fantastic. The, uh, even the, uh, I didn't like it at first, but the, the one that's in, uh, in the States, the, uh, the Formula One track in the States. Oh, called the, the, yeah, the Freedom uh, Track or something. Yes, yeah, so, something, something. Yeah, it's um, some. Something it like that, is. Yeah. A, I didn't like it at first, but that has really grown on me. I have really enjoyed racing that track as well. So anyway, I got into into car racing games, and then that led me to now I want to talk about video games. Um, Dad, I picked before, up the actual yeah. Just a quick one. Did you see the the Christian Bale Matt Damon uh, movie? No. About the Formula One. 
Oh, oh, Formula uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. It's definitely on the list. Uh, Jen's not sure if she wants to see it, but I actually wanted to see that in theaters before mm-hmm. it came out. That's actually about um, uh, a very specific race. It's a, it's a, it's a very specific race called. Oh shit! I can't believe I'm forgetting this. <laughs> it's not Monza. Monza is the track that's in Italy. Anyway, I'll, it'll come to. Isn't me. the French um, one? Or the Spanish one? It might be the one in France. I I don't remember, but Le Monde. Le, I think it's Le Monde. Um, and that, that I think that is the French racetrack. Anyway, uh, Italy or the the uh, Ferrari team had won that many years in a row, and um, Ford decided he wanted to take part in it. The first two or three years, he got his ass handed to him by Ferrari, and then he said, "Oh no, no, I, we're gonna win this." And so he, over the course of a year, he spent you know untold millions of dollars to put together some of the best teams and actually manage to win that. Yeah, so that Ford versus Ferrari, I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm going to watch it. Yeah, I heard great. Hopefully things. in the next couple of weeks. It, it looks fantastic. Sorry, so anyway, I, I, pick, to... I, I picked up on Steam uh, during a Steam sale, a the Formula One, like official licensed 19, 2019 Formula One game. And uh, there's a career mode that, in there. So you start off as like a Formula One, Formula Two racer like a junior racer and you try to prove yourself and then kind of get promoted into formula one hired on a team and so i'm going through that right now and it is super super fun i'm doing it without a steering wheel and pedals which is kind of a pain uh, i tried using a controller and just the controls are, are they're too wonky I'm, i i couldn't get a hold of that or hang of it so i gave up and just went back to the keyboard and i'm doing okay just using the keyboard uh, i'm playing at kind of like a low level i'm not making it super highly realistic but it's still realistic enough that if you're not paying attention all of a sudden you've crashed your, your vehicle and you're out of the race so that has been a lot of fun um and then there's one more game i want to talk about that i just picked up last night and started playing it just a little bit uh it's called cloud punk and it was another game that i picked up on a steam sale it, it re- very recently was released and I, I don't even know if i'm actually going to enjoy this game but it's so weird that i just wanted to try it you play as a uh, like a delivery person in a um, a floating, um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's, it's, it's almost like a, a mini cab. Uh, so, you, so sometimes you might pick up people and take them to destinations. Sometimes you pick up uh, packages, take them to destinations. But there's an actual storyline behind it. And it takes place in like this super futuristic cyberpunk city where, you know, the lower levels are co- constantly uh, in rain and the higher levels where the, the elite live. It's all up in the clouds and above the clouds and up in the sunlight. And, uh, and there seems to be a very cool storyline behind it. So I'm, I'm just slowly getting into that. That's called Cloudpunk. Okay, uh, just, a quick, just a quick one, Dev. Uh, sure. Any idea when you're getting a new computer so you can start playing Division 2 again with us? Well, I bought a new computer, and it's been on back order now since the beginning of this crisis, and I haven't heard anything from them. So I guess next week, sometime this week, I'll contact them and see if either they'll give me a refund or find me like a, a, a replacement for it that they have in hand or on stock. Uh, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know what the... The, pro- the problem is I picked like a prepackaged PC from a... Uh, uh, a computer company that makes high-end gaming PCs. Yeah. And and unfortunately, I think it's coming from the States, and with the issue oh. of border, cross-border stuff, it, it may not be able to deliver it. So, which is why it's been on backcourt this whole time. 
um, if I had just pulled the trigger maybe like two weeks earlier, it actually would have arrived. Yeah, which is funny because we, yeah, we talked about it. It's like if you had ordered before it all started. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, who knew this was going to happen, man? I, we, yeah. I, I couldn't anticipate this. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm still waiting on a new computer, unfortunately. But right. Hopefully very, very soon. Do you want to skip okay. segments two? With that, um, well, I don't, I don't even know. Do we have anything news and yeah. rumors? Well, there's okay, not too so, much going on because of the lockdown. Right, there everything's shut down. There's there's no movies coming out. There's no TV shows. Everything's been put on hiatus. Well, there's a game I want to talk to Patrick about, though. Um, okay. I don't know if you've heard about this one. It's a role-playing game called Warbirds. Um, okay. It's from Outlander Outrider Studios. It's a diesel punk air combat adventure game that focuses Ooh. on fighter pilots as they chase after fame and fortune. That's so it's, like, it's like steampunk, diesel punk, yeah. In the you know in that sort of frame, I'm like, oh, because I remember we've we've done a whole bunch of different games of this sort of thing where there's like the steampunk, mm-hmm. or or that sort of idea as, as flyers and that. So, so then you know about that one. Yeah, I definitely yeah. want to look into that one. The other one is uh, I'm sure Dwayne's heard this one too, and probably Vaughn. Um, so Disney and Lucasfilm are having a little bit of a, a tiff currently. Uh for one of their uh, upcoming uh, Star Wars uh, storylines. It, Hopefully it's, it's on... not Mandalorian. No, no, no. The, it's it's, it's going to be a new all-female or... one, which is fine. It's just that it's who they tapped to be in charge of it is is where the issue's coming in. Oh, is it that Kathleen Kennedy lady again? No, 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 no. H- Harvey Weinstein's personal assistant. Interesting. Someone who's never actually been in movies? Well, no, just let me say the name again. Harvey yeah, Weinstein. Harvey, I, I know. I understand. And they didn't they didn't co- coordinate with Disney first. They're just like, oh, we hired this person. And Disney's like, oh, you do realize PR stuff, that's not looking too good. And Disney's all about, you know, PR. Yeah, yeah. but Harvey Weinstein's personal assistant isn't Harvey Weinstein. No, no but, but he was connected. And probably she... had some ideas of what was going on. Yeah, and... She deleted a lot of tweets that had been there before, but of course they're on the internet. But it's like, yeah, you know, you had some interesting uh, viewpoints that may not want. Okay. So it was just one of the ones ones where it was like, you're still semi-autonomous for Lucasfilms, but this is not looking too good for them for this sort of thing, right? It's like, not saying she's not may not have any skills, but it's just sort of the... The optics of the situation. Yeah, especially, you know, it's still in people's minds, right? So, like, um, I'm also actually saying it's a terrible idea because she probably has no idea what the fuck she's doing to begin with. Well, that's it. You could end up with, like, you know, Barbara Streisand's hair guy, you know, making movies. Right. Yeah, so so my issue with that appointment is less to do with the fact that she was Harvey Weinstein's assistant and more to do with the fact that she's not someone who's ever done something like this before. Yeah. Guys, um, yeah, uh, it's not like... I'm I'm looking it up at the moment, but it's not like this lady doesn't have qualifications. Okay. She's not coming in with her sole qualification being she was Harvey Weinstein's personal assistant whenever. Um, but like I said, it's just the fact that the optics uh, are like, you know, because never mind what her skills or talents are. It's the fact that this is all people are looking at right now because they're like, you may have wanted to, you know, look at at the same time. If Disney hadn't said anything, would it have been as big an issue? Uh, well, it's it's one of those things that might come out, but well, it it, got it, it certainly has come out now. Yeah, that's just it. So, 
Um, well, in, and... in more pleasant news and rumors, um, I'm happy to tell you that the Frosthaven uh, Kickstarter is underway and is doing oh, quite cool. well. Um, I'm, I'm in on it because I love the Gloomhaven oh, yes. game, and I'm looking forward to this uh, new expansion. Um, it's going to be just as big a box as the other one, if not bigger, and is apparently going to introduce a bunch of new character classes or races and uh, NPCs to play against. And, and, and new, new maps, too, is there? Yeah, of course, new, new environments. environments. Yeah. Yeah, really looking forward to that game. And speaking of which, I think we should definitely see if we can get uh, Gloomhaven up and running on um, Tabletop Simulator. Because I've got everything ready to go. We just have to actually start playing. Is it actually in oh. Tabletop Simulator, like, properly? Like uh, yeah, all... in, in the workshop, someone put everything to play the game. Oh, really? Every, nice. every piece, every mm. uh, sticker, every map, every board piece, everything that comes in that box is now available in a, in one uh, location in and, the Steam and Workshop. We don't have to, and you don't have to use up your own stickers. There exactly. Are... That That's the yeah. thing I love most about it. We can play the whole thing. And um, and it won't destroy my board. It won't uh, use up my stickers. Um, yeah. It's it's ultimately replayable. If I wanted to play with five different groups, I could play with five yeah. different groups just Whereas by if you, a copy of it. Exactly. Whereas your other one, you couldn't. You're like, oh, the sticker's already been used. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's one of those um, legacy-type games which costs $150, and I really don't want to throw away <laughs> and start over again. Really? I wonder why. Yeah. To go back to... The whole Star Wars thing. Um, my browser finally called it up because I'm doing all this on my tablet. Um, the lady's name is Leslie Headland. She is the creator behind a Netflix series called Russian Doll, which isn't terrible. From what I understand, well, well, the press for that one was very, very good. Like, critically acclaimed, made a big splash. So it's not terribly surprising that an outfit like Lucasfilm is giving her a shot at this. Okay, sounds good to me. Uh, I do have a couple of things in the whole news and rumors thing. Um, two things from Kickstarter. Uh, one is that uh, uh, latest Kickstarter for Earthbound 4th Ed um, has been quite successful. I think it's currently at uh, over 200% of their goal. So that's definitely happening. Uh, this is for uh, a city setting called Iopus. Um, city of Intrigue, I believe, is how they uh, subtitled it. So that means I'm definitely out some money because I backed that and it's happening. Um, also just found out that... Uh, Pinnacle is in the middle of a uh, Kickstarter for a new edition of Deadlines. Mm -hmm. uh, they are once again working with uh, Shane Hensley, who originally created Deadlines. Uh, supposed to be with their latest uh, Savage Worlds Adventure Edition and stuff. I haven't looked into it a lot, but that's it's uh, interesting what's going on. Uh, my last bit actually kind of leads into segment three a little. So um, I don't know if anyone ha else has anything else. Nope. 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 That's it so, for me. So for segment three, we basically decided, as I recall, we were going to talk about brick and mortar 
comic shops and the future for that or possibly the lack of future for that. Well, something they've brought up because of Diamond. Well, that's the, that's the bit of news I've got. DC Comics, one of the North American big two, has broken away from Diamond. Yeah, they're going with... During the pandemic, they've gone with two smaller distributors. That's one of them. I can't remember the name of the second one. These are actually basically just uh, large online retailers under different names. And so there's been a lot of consternation in the comic shop world of, you know, basically DC jumping into bed with folks that are really the competition for a lot of the shops out there. Yeah, because there are what this this means. Has their own store. Like they're a store, and now they're getting the big contract for DC for distributing. Yeah. Yep. So, yeah. The thing is, this this is, I've been watching ones where they're saying it's sort of self induced because Diamond got, had everything. Like all the, Everything was set up through Diamond, Marvel, DC, and all that. It's, it was going through Diamond. So all of a sudden, if you have one company that's basically got the monopoly for distribution, they can set a lot of, you know, uh, dictate a lot of terms to the companies. Mm-hmm. And so Vaughn, this is why one of the reasons, well, you, you, <laughs> multiple, just to have talked to you, but also sort of interesting that uh, you. You know, you know about diamond because you 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 deal with it. So, what do you it, feel for? It's a tricky situation. I mean, I, I mean, it's hard to get at too because it's a very big subject. I mean, my feeling with diamond is that problem with diamond is they're both a monopoly in the direct market, but they are also a monopsony. And that affects the publisher. So if you sort of imagine like um, an hourglass kind of shape, at the bottom of it are all the brick-and-mortar retailers and online retailers in the direct market, and they typically can only order, uh, certainly for periodical, uh, for most periodical comics, especially the broker, what are considered like the brokered publishers or premier publishers with Diamond, so Marvel, DC, Image, Dark Horse, and you start to spread out into Boom and whatnot. So all those retailers, if if you want those type of comics, you have to have a diamond account. So that's the monopoly. But then on the top side of the hourglass are all the publishers that are non-brokered or non-premier. So everybody from people like me to sort of smaller publishers like Action Lab and, and whatnot. Um, and they all, if they want access to the direct market stores, they have to go through diamond. So they all their stuff feeds into diamond. The problem, how to say this, like the problem with Diamond has always been that when you only have one distributor, it creates sort of market inefficiencies that are problematic in many ways. But at the same time, there are also market efficiencies. So in other words, you're a retailer and you know, you're a classic comic book shop and whatnot, rather than having to deal with 10, 20, whatever distributors, which was what it was like before uh, the distributor wars in the sort of the mid-1990s. Because remember, 
Diamond was one distributor amongst others like Capital and Andromeda and so on and so forth, some uniquely Canadian as well, right from sort of the, uh, the birth of the direct market in the 1970s. And then there was, it's a long story, hopefully you guys know it, but basically Marvel uh, attempted to create their own distribution system using a regional distributor, I think on the West Coast called Heroes World, and that just exploded in their faces uh it was also at a period where the industry this was all death of superman and image comics launching the the yep. industry was just on fire and uh, part of what happened with marvel was heroes world just could not handle going from a regional distributor to a sort of a north american wide distribution uh, distributor um, and there was uh, all kinds of mergers and acquisitions after that, and it eventually led to just Diamond and Capital, a capital city. And then, to make a long story short, Diamond, you know, basically took over Capital City, leaving Diamond as it is now. Um, it's tricky. Like, I don't blame some people. Get really tight with diamond i i generally don't blame them for taking taking advantage of a market situation um and if it hadn't been them it might very well have been capital city it it a lot of it had to do with various contracts that were being signed by different publishers as the direct market was really shaking because of primarily because of what happened with marvel and heroes world but also because of the uh the market crash that the direct market had as people realized that all those copies of things like the death of Superman weren't worth anything and yeah. pulled back out. So as the speculators pulled out comic shops that we didn't have the final order cutoff type systems that are now in place. So retailers that were buying months in advance, thinking that they were going to sell to pick a number, a hundred copies of something now could only sell 10 of it, but those were non cancelable non-returnable orders. And, stuck with it and that created cascade effect where we lost a lot of retailers something very similar happened in the sports card industry as well um so it, it was a bad situation and diamond um many ways you can make sort of a, a counterintuitive argument and say that high diamond becoming the one sort of the only distributor in the direct market it stabilized the direct market in a, at a time when maybe the direct market might have gone away and that you know that was a pretty real and pretty scary uh, possibility in the 90s that said monopoly monopsony critique of diamond is still there and we have not had other distributors sort of step up there have been a few i don't know if you guys are familiar there was cold cut distribution doing independence for a while another one started called fm international sort of in the 90s as well and they all none of these sort of lasted very long and it, it left Diamond. Now, Diamond is tricky because you can also make an argument, especially if you go outside of periodical comics, like Saddle Stitch, 32-page periodical comics, that it's not a monopoly because, obviously, uh, the book trade distributes a lot of graphic novels. Uh, graphic novels are also, obviously, bought online at places like Amazon or Chapters Indigo or Barnes & Noble and so on and so forth, you know, around the world. So, it's, it's, uh, it becomes a trickier argument depending on how you define what comics are and what format is and whatnot. Certainly, in terms of market access for comic book shops in North America and Britain, 
diamond is uh, a difficult, um, sort of a difficult nut to crack. So my, from, just to give you like a practical experience from one small publisher, me dealing with them, uh, I have an, a vendor account with diamond and stargazer, my two uh, volume black and white graphic novel was distributed through diamond into comic book shops back in 2011 and 2012, I think. Um, and that worked. I mean, the sales weren't great because I'm a small press, but it uh, it was really it was really neat to have them out there, and there was some good retailer support and whatnot. Um, you know, the, as you guys I'm sure know, there are some retailers that only carry sort of front of the comment, uh, front of the catalog diamond previews, publishers like Marvel, DC, Image, and Dark Horse, and that's it. And then you have more independent friendly. Uh, retailers that are are more willing to go outside of the box and you know represent a broader range, you know what different people are and different publishers are printing and publishing and whatnot. Um, so those that those type of retailers were my were my market in the direct market. Um, what happened is, and this is where Diamond can also be really frustrating, is my sales rep who I had a really good relationship with uh, moved on. He, uh, he quit working at Diamond, and I think he went with, oh, I'm blanking now, it's either Boom or, um, you know, Dynamite. I think he went with Dynamite. I'm not, don't quote me, but I think he went with Dynamite. He left, and my replacement uh, rep, sales rep, has been not so good. And there has been, um, it's been really frustrating because, like, the process with Stargazer went just flawlessly. I can believe how smoothly it and the situation with pitching Wolf's Head to them, um, even though I would argue that my work is certainly improved, it's full color versus black and white. Like, I think Wolf's Head is a much stronger comic than Stargazer was. Um, but I, I have just had an incredibly difficult uh, relationship with my sales rep. And when that happens in a monopoly situation, there's nobody else I can go to. Uh, unless I sort of go individually to the um, like to each comic book shop and try to pitch it to them, that's just a ridiculous amount of work. I've actually done it in the past, and it is, it, yeah, imagine how much work that must be. That must be crazy. I mean, one of the points of having a distributor in the first place is they they facilitate this for you. So right. it's um, you know the the long story short with it is Wolf's Head has only been available in a handful of comic book shops because I've had sort of individual relationships with some in like Montreal and Halifax and whatnot. But um, it's been really problematic, especially in. The I, sorry, sorry, I just want to I just want to butt in for a second. Strange Adventures. Are you saying? Yeah. Yeah, like. Uh... Strange Adventures in Halifax. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, Calumny Store. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That that makes a lot of sense. I know Strange Adventures well. Uh, Strange I'm originally Adventures from Nova Scotia. They're they're oh okay they're they're fantastic. Yeah, Callum is Callum is exactly the kind of store I was talking about. Is they are uh, he has always championed sort of smaller press and people starting out and whatnot, and has just been tremendously supportive and. Um, you you need you know as a as a creator and as a small press you need sort of retailers like that to get behind you. Now what's made you know in my case that sort of mitigated the frustration I've had with Diamond is that 
because we have this entire online world, I've been able to get Wolfset into places like Amazon and Barnes and Nobles, and also through Indie Pound, Indie Bound for uh, oh. American independent bookstores. I was, I was just going to ask that if you were getting on like Kindle and stuff like that. So thanks for answering. <laughs> Kindle, no, um, I, I, that, that's a bit of a, a trick, but Comixology, yes, and that just happened. Um, so it's, you know, like, it's, it's, we're in an interesting time, not just because of the pandemic, but just because of both market, like, from publishers' point of view, access to markets. You not, you know, Diamond is not only game in town if you can create you know, sort of connections with an audience and people are willing, as most people are, to buy things online. That's worked out. It's been okay. I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't profoundly disappointed not to have um, you know, more brick-and-mortar comic book shops on side. But it's, um, it's what's basically saved the series from cancellation. Because if it had been... Basically, if this was a different point in time, if this was like 1992 or something, um, or maybe, maybe better, 1998, and the distributor wars happened and it was only Diamond, but we hadn't seen the transformation in online buying. Um, if Diamond had said no, then I'm, I'm really screwed. Like, that would have killed it right there. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's sort of the good and the bad with how things are moving. Now, what's really interesting about what's just happened, sort of stepping outside of myself, um, but what's happened with Diamond in DC very recently is... I'm hoping I'm getting the names right. So one of the new distributors is Lunar, and the other one is UCS, I think. As Dwayne mentioned, both of these are distributors but are owned by two of Diamond's largest accounts. So one of them is DCBS, which is Discount Comic Book Service, and they're, I think, the, on the largest online seller of comics and graphic novels. And then the other one is uh, backed by Midtown Comics. And Midtown Comics is not just an online seller. They're a brick-and-mortar store chain as well. Um, but what's... I understand it, DC's argument was basically on the lines of both of these stores are already facilitating a lot of our subscription orders. They're good at what they do. They, uh, are, they know our, our product really well. They know comics, obviously. So they are a good way to go. Um, and they wanted to, I'm presuming, avoid stuff like the Heroes World problem. On the other hand, and again, Dwayne was mentioning this, um, there are other large stores like Lone Star, you know, like uh, Mile High Comics in uh, Colorado that are multiple stores. And I'm, you know, immediately when I saw the announcement, I was thinking, are stores like this, let alone smaller one shop, you know, thousand or two thousand square feet stores, going to want to give their proprietary ordering information to retailer competitors? It, I, I, I don't think so. Or if they do, they'll they'll not be happy about it. Um, and I don't know. I'm one of the conundrums I have with this that's really sort of bewildering to me is. Diamond has said they are going to resume distribution in a, approximately three weeks. So, was DC like, is DC feeling they can't wait for that? I mean, it would have been four or five weeks at the time they were working this out, but they not wait until Diamond got back into running? Or was this something they had been planning before the pandemic? 
and they just happen to either you know fast forward it a little bit or or what like i don't I mean, have an answer no i think it might be maybe a combination of both you know like i'm sure they already you know talked about before it's like well do we need another distribution and then like th this is my mind i think it, it's sort of a combination of both they had it sort of in the background before they were they discussed it a couple times and then this you know the the, the pandemic sort of it made them go okay we now we need to make a decision you know because they're not sure how long it's going to go on for so i guess they're like okay we're not sure how long it's going to last we need to have a, something else in place just in case go with it you might very well be right i mean it's um we've not been given a lot of information about it i'm very curious in the sort of uh meeting with bated breath to sort of see how this plays out especially as we get into the summer and then especially you know when a vaccine is is you know finally issued and things sort of get back to normal however we quite define that mm -hmm. um but into the fall or into next year are we in a three distributor world and is this something new? And then what does Marvel do, you know, an image and whatnot? Like, I, there's no answers right now. I have no idea. And the thing is, I was going to say, like, um, well, for digital stuff, I know, I can't remember, is it Jim Sterling or some other artist was saying, well, we've had digital for quite a while. People still buy the book stuff. Like, we've had digital for years. And people do subscribe to it. But the, still the biggest one is print. Print is still the biggest one for comics. Uh, but you're right, for going up with a, a distributor who is also a store, you know, it's probably going to happen, but human temptation and greed is like, well, here's a small store that's near our area that's a competitor. What if somehow their shipping gets delayed a little bit, you know, like a day or two? Well, and back in uh, Heroes World days is, by memory here, but if I recall, like part of the problem was that um, when Marvel switched to being exclusive to Heroes World, and I don't think it was actually done deliberately. It was just they, because Heroes World couldn't handle the volume and the number of accounts, you had exactly that. If somebody would order X-Men or whatever, or Spidey or something, and you know one store would get it and another store would be short-shipped. But if they're in the same market, like in the same yeah. geographical space, that's a significant problem. You can't have well, that. Exactly. No, because then you're like, oh, well, we've got ours today. You know, They're not getting theirs till next week. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it, it may not be on purpose, but it's still bad enough for the, the smaller store that's going, well, we don't have a distribution <clears throat> network ourselves. What are we supposed to do? Um, so have you been talking to some of the stores yourself? Like, cause you, cause I know you're, you've done some direct distribution yourself. Have you talked to them to see how they feel like the small brick and mortar guys, how they feel like the comic book shop here in Ottawa? I have. I actually have not spoken partially because everybody is, uh, you know, sort of scrambling. So I haven't talked directly, yeah. but I've been reading probably similar stuff that you guys have. Plus, we know a few um, are some private retailer groups I'm sort of a part of on places like Facebook. So when you're surfing comments and whatnot, I mean, people like Brian Hibbs, who owns Comics Experience in the San Francisco area, have been very vocal about their unhappiness. Uh, you know, his yeah. unhappiness. Well, yeah, Hibbs is always vocal. It doesn't matter what's going on. <laughs> Hibbs has an opinion about it, and he likes to talk about it. It's true. I mean, honestly, like my feeling, like what where this has left me is, I was not planning on bringing Wolf's Head to Comicsology anytime soon. I had experimented with it, so some of my other work is there. I was sort of being fairly hesitant because I was still working out my own situation with Diamond. 
when the pandemic hit and when we started going into lockdown, I scrambled for the last couple of weeks, converting everything um, into the format that Comixology requires, you know, so you can upload it to them and whatnot. It is just, I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, no, I, I mean, and I know DC has been moving more things to their digital first sort of program as well and whatnot. So it's, nobody was expecting anything like this. I mean, I think a lot of people were, were projecting maybe a recession, but nobody was expecting anything like this. So, and uh, well, also the worries is there'll be a recession after this because mm-hmm. recovery, even if it's like say next month, they say it's back to normal. It won't be for, you know, economic point you know, from a standpoint of an economic thing, it's going to take a long time to recover from all this anyways. Yeah, Which, it, I think the economic yeah. effects is we get more data coming in next month and whatnot, uh, both on the unemployment side and what's happening. Well, well what's interesting is usually during downtime, like heavy recession, entertainment still does well because people need that, yeah. you know, something else to look at besides what their future is. So the entertainment, like movies and, and books and that do actually don't do too bad. Like they still suffer, but they're overall not as bad as you'd expect because people need an outlet, you know, it, it comics like entertainment in general tends to be counter cyclical for exactly the reason driving. Yeah. So, um, it's just, it's because this is so difficult to know. And I mean, like in my case with comicsology, comics only comicsology only releases sales data. Um, about a month after uh, the actual closing of the month. So in other words, I won't know how Wolf's Head number one has done on their platform for probably a month. And yeah. so it's like, I have no idea if it's doing well or not doing well or, you know, have you. It's, so there is certainly um, one of the advantages with Diamond is because the orders are non-returnable, you, you get your you know, sales to stores, not obviously sales to Consumers, but you know, sales to stores, and you have a very good sense of what the, you know, all of that is uh, the, one of the beautiful things about the direct market that's very different than the book. Do you think maybe the part of the things from Diamond is they might have to start accepting returns from this because you know, stores are like, we are we got stuck with a huge inventory, no way to get rid of it. We want to sometimes be able to return books. Do you think that might be a part of the discussion that might bring up with Diamond of like, okay, we want to be able to return some things every once in a while? Maybe. So this is, um, um, what I'm about to say, I'm not 100% sure I'm correct, but it's my understanding is Diamond is unique. When Diamond orders comics or graphic novels from somebody like me, they take possession. Like they own them. They pay me, they ship them out to whoever, you know, whichever retailers purchase them. And then they invoice those retailers, get the money from them. But for the brokered publishers like DC and Marvel and Image and Dark Horse, again, my understanding is that a diamond never takes possession, like a, in, in terms of an ownership. They're more of a freight forwarder. They take a, a percentage off the top of um, you know whatever the revenue is, and like on a per copy basis, probably. But they they don't actually take ownership. So. Image, just to pick one, if Image says we're now accepting returns, yes, Diamond, I mean, it becomes an interesting question. Like, would Diamond accept that? And then if they do accept it, I'm assuming Image has to cover it. It's not like Diamond, you know, those expenses would necessarily be Diamond's expense alone. 
assuming image would actually have to carry most of that and the same is true for marvel and as well yeah well uh, i've definitely i've definitely heard of marvel and dc making certain issues returnable yes that has happened several times um but i don't know i don't know the business terms i don't know what deal they worked out with diamond to make that happen and each, uh, again, as I understand it, is each of these brokered publishers would have slightly different contracts with slightly different wording, probably relatively standard, you know, but um, there are separate business deals with each of these publishers. So, um, and again, it's possible that C made some of the moves they've made recently because they felt that either wasn't as accommodating as they wanted them to be or perhaps they felt that there was a leverage opportunity they could get their comics out in at a time when marvel doesn't seem to be doing the same thing so it just we don't know there's just no information really um except for speculation and um really tough to know and it also we don't know yet uh how many retailers um have signed on the new distributors and what it's, is it coming out this week that they're starting the new distributors are actually starting to ship or I can't remember if it's this week Ooh, or next week. I, I can't remember. I think it was, I think it was, I can't remember if it's in April this, or beginning of May. It's this week. It's supposed to be April 28th. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if that's right, then we might get a, a better sense maybe by Wednesday or Thursday about what the sort of the fill rates are and, you know, how, how efficient the shipping has been, or is, is this going to explode? You know, I, find out soon enough i guess yep um getting, getting back to our uh, topic about what this means for the actual brick and mortar stores um what do we feel like is going to be like the near short term and then long term future of these brick and mortar stores does anyone have any thoughts about it well, i, I know we'll probably lose... oops sorry go ahead uh... go ahead oh, i'm sorry no it's all right <laughs> I was going to say, I think that like some smaller ones will probably, unfortunately, go out of business, uh, just because of the whole economic problems. You know, like staff and everything. They, I think, some small ones will probably go out of business. Um, but overall, I think the the industry itself will recover, and we'll still see brick and mortar stores for a while. There might have to be some changes again for distribution, that. But I still think, in the end, there will still be a fair amount of brick and mortar stores. Ahead, yeah, there's there's just something about going to a place and flipping through like those old long boxes of of comics, trying to find that one issue that you've been missing, and talking you, to the you, staff about you know, hey, what's cool about you know, like what's new, what's what fits with this and stuff. Yeah, I usually don't do that, but if I'm if I'm looking for like a specific issue, and I've been hunting it down, I've I've gone to like twelve different stores, and I've gone through everything they have just to see if that one issue is there. You kind of lose that that fun and i don't know about thrill but but just that that enjoyment of doing that if you're if you're just going online you're clicking in one place and going oh they have the they have the back issue here i go i'll just buy it yeah but Vaughn, you know you were going to say uh... yeah, well i actually i come out of a retail background just in the book trade not not comic shop so i used to manage perfect books down on elgin street for a number of years before i sort of got into the creative side of things um, and yeah, I think like smaller stores, I mean, there's so many unknowns, like my, you know, my honest answer is it depends because it really depends on whether landlords give, you know, in two different countries, at least 
give uh, good rental breaks, you know, to um, their, you know, the business customers they have, um, because it's not just the comics and having things to sell, it's the expense side as well. And it's going to be tough if um, there aren't things like, I know like the Canadian government is trying to do rent forgiveness, but I, as I was for, for business businesses, but it looks like, if I'm understanding it right, it looks like it's optional for landlords to participate or not. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that people aren't happy with for, for it. So it's yeah. not perfect where it's like, oh, okay, you don't have to pay rent or whatever. And even though there's some wording in there, it doesn't. There's no uh, stringent thing that forces them, you know, landlords not to charge rent. Yeah, I, and I mean, I don't know in the in with the United States and then with Britain, you know, how much of this is going to be on like in the in the case of the Americans, like how much is this going to be on a state by state basis? And it's so it's going to be tough. I mean, I like like everyone. I you know, I mean, I like comic shops, and obviously, we know comic shop owners. So I would hate to see any of them. I've already seen a few people I like over the years, you know, closed down, and I'm happy about it. So I would I would cheer for a really vibrant, uh, you know, comic book shop ecosystem ecosystem for lack of a better word. It's just, but it's just it's so hard to speculate. I'm a little bit worried that. We'll see consolidations so that, you know, we'll see coming out of this, depending on how long it goes, uh, maybe some of the smaller shops uh, get, you know, either just shut down or get bought out by larger ones. So we'll actually have less independent owners uh, as a result. And that could happen on the publishing side, too. But it's just it's so soon to tell. It's so tough. Well, to I was going to say, I think Ottawa might have it. Look, because the comic book shop, I remember last year, they were having some financial problems already. Um, yeah. And I mean, they were just starting to come back from that, and all of a sudden, this happens, you know. So it's like, okay, last year they had some financial difficulties; they needed a lot of help, and then all of a sudden, this happens again. It's like, will they, will he be able to recover, you know, from two years in a row of having, you know, big uh, financial losses? Yeah, you know? I mean, I, I even remember, I remember Arthur's from way back when, and then yeah, Arthur's, yes, you know. And then when Silver Snail came in, we just called it Silver Arthur's for a while because it's <laughs> the same store. But yeah, I remember that. I mean, it's and I remember yeah the collapse of the comics, you know, back when too, where it was like, oh, you know, it went from a everywhere's got them to okay, no one, no one wants to buy comics again, and the stores went out of business and everything. And I think it's it's you know cyclical. They'll it'll go through some things in my mind. Yeah, we'll lose a few businesses, but I think overall it'll still it'll still be at least that's what I hope. Yeah, I, I think it's a good hope to have. I mean, I certainly would like that too. It's it's going to be fascinating to watch, and it's also going to be fascinating to see if if this does go long. Um, you know, if either like a vaccine can't be found, or there's you know other unforeseen complications. Do you know do publishers amp up? Um, I don't know subscriptions. Like, do they do they sort of change the focus from retailers to actual like end consumers and try to you know solve the you know the problems with getting comics out there that way? Or we see more online. Like, I don't know. So yeah. you've got me. I have no idea how it's going to go. I guess part of it is also going to be how long it continues for too, right? I mean, we don't know, but if it does, you know, you sort of go, well, if it continues on, they're going to have to come up with some different answers. So I, I feel bad for all the, the small owners and like people like you that are the small independent people who are like, hey, I just started in there. I started to do okay. And now <laughs> I can't get my message out. 
Yeah. Well, also, as we were talking about the uh, the rise of digital delivery and just the the, the ability to to view the uh, the comics in a digital format has completely changed the way I read comics. Like, I mean, I, I sure I could purchase a bunch of comics myself and just have them paperback. I like having that paper in my hand, but just the convenience of having maybe thirty issues on my iPad and just taking that with me on a trip somewhere. It's just the, the convenience convenience alone has made it so that I'm much more likely to be watch reading my comic books digitally these days than actually buying them in person. Like, I can't remember the last time I I physically purchased a uh, even a graphic novel. I just I haven't done it. Yeah, and one of the interesting things during the whole pandemic thing was would uh, publishers who regularly publish digitally continue to do that while the physical product couldn't be shipped? Mm -hmm. And most publishers said, no, we will hold off until, you know, the frickin' mortar can get it. But some didn't. Mm. Some decided. Some decided no. Like we have the product. Comicsology is still there. You know, you will find our new issues on Comicsology as usual. Yeah. So, one of the significant problems with Diamond that is hard from a publisher's point of view, and it makes um, the direct market very, very difficult. It's probably maybe I should have mentioned this earlier is the brokered publishers set their own discount um, levels based on various quantities. So I'm sure you you know this if you you know sometimes they do it. It's more visible for variant covers. If you bought you know X number of X Men whatever, then you are allowed you know one copy of this special you know signed issue or whatever. But they also have of minimum thresholds and usually in terms of dollar amount and then you know your discount goes up so a very very small store um, might only get something like you know 40 to 45 percent off the cover price for like an issue of superman or batman or what have you the larger stores like a mile high or whatnot you might be getting 58 percent off um however for somebody like me with Diamond, it's much more set because Diamond sets their own discount plateaus. Usually, I have to sell to Diamond at 60% off cover. Um, so, you know, the math is pretty easy. 60% off cover. And then Diamond will offer, you know, in the previews catalog, uh, retailers usually around a 40 to a 45% discount off that. And they make, you know, 15, Diamond makes 15 to 20% off the sale okay if you're a brick and mortar retailer and you know what your audience is and your customer base and you have sales data because you have a point of sale system and you have subscriptions and what have you you know that you can sell this issue of superman or batman and maybe you're going to get 55 percent off or you know, maybe 58 percent off or maybe there's some type of incentive or whatever then this von allen guy comes along with his comics and you're going to max out at 40 to 45%. Right away, built in to Diamond and the direct market is an un, un, sort of an unlevel playing field. Is I can't compete with Marvel and DC on price. I'm just not allowed to. Well, I can't go uh, to Diamond. Well, maybe can we sell my stuff to uh, retailers at 5% off? 
know, I'll, maybe I'll take a little bit of a lot. Like, I'm, those type of options are not available. Um, and it can be very frustrating sometimes because, you know, retailers are very, and having been one, I know, like, retailers are very understandably conservative without, with, when you're, especially when you're buying non-returnably, well, yeah, like, if you're buying something non-returnably and you have no idea who the, you know, the creators or the characters are, why would you, you know, it immediately builds in a conservatism because you're afraid you're going to take a loss. And hard to argue with that. Of course, that's oh, yeah. a legitimate, you know, legit you said, because it's non-returnable. You're like, well, if it's non-returnable, maybe I'll order just, you know, three or four copies, just enough to say I've got it to show, but you're not going to be ordering 100 or so. Exactly. Exactly. So that's always been one of the problems with sort of the single distributor direct market right now is the publisher there's nobody else to go set up separate deals with i can't go to a capital city or an andromeda or sticks or whatever that used to be around and go well okay like can we do something maybe if i give you exclusivity or you know is there some way we can make this a better deal to retailers and maybe make you a bit more money too is like is there some way i can do things to make it more profitable for retailers to roll the dice on something they don't know. That's all very, very difficult to do now. And I think it's part of the reason why there has certainly been um, uh, more, you know, sort of experimentation being done by publishers with things like Comixology because direct market is so hard to access. And it's so hard to sort of, even once you're in on it, in on in, in you know into the direct market through diamond it's so hard to build an audience from there because even if you get i don't know like 100 stores 200 stores on side how do you keep developing that it's mm -hmm. very very tricky yeah and like you said also it helps if you you know if you who your rep is at the at diamond as well yeah like if you're if your reps out there selling you a lot okay fine but if they're just sort of like okay here's an independent you know like they're not really pushing you with much and you have no say in that either right it's not like you are the one going to the stores it's your rep and if your rep's just doing so so you won't know you know because like why why are there no orders ah uh, no one's interested yeah and honestly the reality is even when you have a good rep is once you're in all the work like once diamond says yes they're going to distribute this and you're going to appear in the previews catalog that's typically where it stops. I mean, if you're lucky, you might get a little spotlight or, you know, a little bit of um, sort of a better cataloging position or what have you. But honestly, then sort of falls back to the publisher to start contacting stores to say, hey, in two or three months, you know, my comic is going to be coming out through Diamond. Here's the ordering information, you know, and can I send you a PDF? Can I, you know, what can I do to help you sell it? So you still, even with Diamond, you still have a ridiculous amount of work to do on the back end. Um, again, I wonder if that might not be quite the same if Diamond had a bit more of um, like another distributor pushing them to you know, be more innovative. All right. I, well, I think we might want to be getting close to a dev. Uh, sorry, Dwayne. I was just looking at the Deadlands, uh, going back to the Deadlands PDF uh, or the Deadlands Kickstarter. Not the best. Not the best uh, option because you they're like, oh, you'll get the Deadlands core book, but you need the other book as well to play. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> well, the thing is, is that 
you know, if you go with the players, if you're a player, if you're going to be running, you go with the Marshalls package, that gives you both. Uh, you no. Know, I was looking at the, the $100 one, the Marshalls one. Uh, still need the copy of the Savage Worlds Adventure Edition is necessary to play. Well, yeah, and these are not included in these rewards. Yeah, that's just that's just Savage Worlds, man. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't matter which game, which setting. Um, you always have to get Savage Worlds separately. Yeah, I know. It's, it's like if I'm paying two hundred dollars US, you'd think they'd be should throw that in there. Yeah, but the Savage World core book itself, thankfully, is cheap. Oh, I know. It's just sort of like you're just looking there. If I'm paying two hundred dollars US, I shouldn't have to buy a separate book to play this game. I just dumped two hundred and twenty dollars into. Is my mind, anyways. Uh, Derham, did you want to call it up then for the night? Or, uh, well, actually, I had one more question about uh, for for Vaughn, our our guest. Um, you're 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 talking about this new um, series that you have currently coming out. Um, when you're creating um, a new book like that, um, what's like the, the the typical turnaround time to put out a new issue? Um, like, is it is it a monthly book? Is it uh, is it once every two months? Like, like how's how's your process in actually putting this book out? Especially since you said you're doing everything for it, right? Coloring uh, the the in initial uh, image creation, all the the writing for it as well. Uh, it's for me, but there are things that happen that sort of create hiccups along the way. So it's probably um, about two, two and a half months, depending for a single issue. So, I mean, I, I was pretty confident if, if it had come out like a, a classic 32 page, you know, or 28 page, something like that, saddle stitched periodical, I could do about six a year. Okay. Uh, that's sort of my workflow. Um, but it, there are things that can happen that can just, uh, you know, screw that up. And it's be, you know, it's a classic situation is because I don't have consistent revenue stream coming from the diamond direct market side of things. It means I have to take on other projects when they come up and that creates delays. So mm -hmm. I'm very happy to have like 10 full issues done already on comiXology like that. I'm very pleased with, but I would have preferred that number to be more like 20. But it's just you, you your work comes up and you have to take it, and that's what creates the meaning. Okay. And honestly, like if you get into the nuts and bolts of it, is um like the I have a pretty fluid way of working now. So um I do most of the penciling early roughly by hand still. I do um, all the inking and coloring digitally. Okay. And, you know, so you look for ways of sort of Im improving your speed. So I use Manga Studio for uh, inking, and it's a phenomenal program. It's really intuitive and very, very natural. Um, and I use Photoshop for coloring. The advantage with, um, I actually love old school, hand done, like watercolors and whatnot um, for comics. And I think they can create really beautiful effects. But the major advantages with working digitally, um, particularly in a CMYK for print, um, you know, inside like Photoshop, you can, is that you can control all the inks. So you can get a very good idea of this is what the ink looks on my screen. And this is how I, you know, I have a very good approximation of what in print. So uh, 
that kind of thing. Um, digital inking means you don't have to scan. You know, you don't have to sort of sometimes when you scan uh, artwork, there's artifacts like quote unquote artifacts that show up that you have to correct digitally anyway. Mm. Um, and the way I, I submit files to the printer is they're PDFs. So high res PDF. So at some point, the work has to be converted to digital anyway, because you have to submit in a PDF format. Um, it's not like they're shooting film off of old artboards or something. So, <laughs> but I mean, you, you learn, like, if I was working with somebody else, um, you know, there are workflow becomes a little bit different. But uh, for, certainly for Wolfset, I've got a pretty good way of working that i'm very pleased with and i've learned a lot you know doing it i'm i things have evolved a little bit from when i was doing the first issue to now and it's you know you learn by doing and uh comics is certainly true of that um all right uh that sounds great gentlemen i think we might want to wrap yeah up yeah i i think we've we've come to the end of this episode <laughs> uh vaughn thank <laughs> you so much for joining us um yes, this has been a very fantastic discussion thank we'll you back right. anytime yeah, yeah and, and for for those of you joining us uh, online, um, here's the end Stay of another safe. episode. And hopefully it's over soon. Well, uh, we, we have months still. but So there, there'll be at least, you know, maybe three, four more of these to go before we are able to sit down and, and do it in person once again. Thanks, everyone. All right. Thank you for joining us. Have a great day, Bye. everyone. Bye. Bye now. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Out of the Basement podcast. We'd like to thank Radio Free Music for our intro and outro music. Both songs were done by an amazing artist named Silent Partner. The intro music is called Drop and Roll, and the outro music is called Grand Navy Plaza. And we'll have links to both those songs in our show notes. If you liked what you heard and wish to support the show, please consider becoming a backer on Patreon. We can be found at patreon.com slash OOTBpod. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time.